0: What happened to Paul? Where did our beloved Paul go? Is Paul McCartney alive? Is he dead? Is he still among us? Who is this man that we love? The answer to those questions and more tonight on an epic episode of Wrestling with the Future. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, I can Angelo joined tonight by a stellar panel and joined by uh, a returning guest, a brand new guest. And, of course, uh, Mike Messier is here, too. So Thanks. let's Thanks, uh, let's welcome in, Mikey. That was a a, a laugh line. That was a tagline. <laughs> F- <laughs> that, that was that was my
1: Jesse the Body moment, and I dropped it. But uh, I'm glad to be here, Angelo. You are right. We have got two awesome guests, two guys that are very familiar with the whole internet world, the YouTube world.
0: That's two sorry. men
1: of high intelligence and uh, brave men too, because I think that the topics that these guys discuss. Uh, takes courage, quite honestly, because a lot of people don't want to take on these topics and take on some of the things that these guys take on. So, it's gonna be
0: a great show, gonna be a good one. A returning guest and a brand new guest, actually, uh, two stellar panelists. I am honored to have back Mike Williams, the Sage of Quay. Mike, it's the Sage of Quay, Mike.
1: The Sage of Quay, correct? Why, Not Not
0: <laughs> Mike Williams and the Sage of Quay. He is America's favorite Paul is Dead guy. In fact, to my knowledge, he may be the only uh, Paul is Dead guy. With Vince Russo lurking in the wings to take over that illustrious position. And my second guest, a brand new guest to the show. A guy I want, that i wanted here for a really, really long time. But getting him to return an email or a phone call is damn near impossible. <laughs> you call his phone, this is what you get. It's Vince. Leave a message. <laughs>
2: Oh, you gotta have you gotta have Mike contact me when when Mike ex Mike when Mike contacts me Mike gets immediate response. <laughs> yeah, I know shit, brother. That's Let me right. tell you something. Mike's Mike's my teacher. I'm, I'm he's my mentor. So if you ever need to get <laughs> anybody needs to get a hold of me, go through Mike and you will get a hold of me.
0: Yeah, I know that now, and I have your damn phone number to <laughs> get a hold of you. <laughs> oh my God! So, Vince Russo, uh, you are. A, uh, a, a gem, you are a lightning rod, you are uh, a guy I have uh, emulated, modeled myself after. Some people say that I look like your twin brother,
2: take a good look. I'm honored numbers. to have
0: you on my show. It's a, it's a pleasure to be uh, uh, among the, the, uh, the company of two really interesting guys. Mike Messier, we have a couple of guys tonight that are going to take us... Uh, Take us through their experiences down their road. Uh, so you, you heard me say at the beginning, what happened to our beloved Paul? Where did Paul go? That's the question we've been asking for damn near fifty five, fifty six 56 years. What happened to Paul? Well, partly myth, partly conjecture. But the subject of two incredibly thick books, the memoirs of Billy Shears, and of course, the uh, the red cover and the blue, and I always get this wrong, Mike Williams. This is the nine after nine oh nine edition. That's the second edition, right? That's a mouthful, brother. <laughs> <laughs> and that is the uh, memoirs of Billy Shear. Now I've read both of these books. The footnotes in the blue cover are uh, really, really enlightening and illuminating. Let's let's talk about how this all came to be um and just you know so people understand I'm 62 years old so I remember when this uh this rumor of Paul McCartney being dead started and I first became aware of it somewhere around 68 or 69 I believe it was right around 68 that I became aware of it um, but there were rumblings earlier than 1968, as early as '66 and '67, if you believe some people. So, Mike, let's, let's kind of start at the beginning. Um, the Reader's Digest version. Where did where did the, all of this stuff begin? The uh, the rumor, the speculation. Where does fact, in your opinion? conjecture with the speculative rumor of 1968 and 69 that plays into this DJ apparently having something to do with propagating this rumor so I'll I'll shut up and let you talk
3: well biological Paul McCartney died and the way the story goes in a car crash on September 11th 1966 some researchers will have a different date, some will say it was August, some might say it's November, but in the memoirs of Billy Shears, um, who we have Billy actually telling his story through Thomas U. Harriet. So think of Tom, even though he's referred to as the encoder, and we can get into that in a little bit. The book is encoded, it's written in layers, Um, it's like a puzzle, it's like solving a puzzle. So Tom is the encoder, but we can look at him as the ghostwriter. And, um, Billy tells us, and the guy who's playing Paul McCartney, his name is, he tells us his name is William Shepard. And I'll call him Billy Shears because that's the name he gives us in Sergeant Pepper on the album. Right. Right? And, uh, it's an easier name to go to because too many people want to debate William Campbell versus William Shepard. Fine. We'll just go with Billy Shears. Yep. And, um. So Billy tells us in the book that it was the very late in the evening on September 11th, 1966, there was a car crash and uh, biological Paul McCartney died. And they wanted to keep the Beatles together. We can get into that later on in the show as to what the reasons were. Right, Uh, sure. And, you know, some of the, the very simplistic view was that Uh, They thought the fans would be so upset and, you know, the girls would be upset and there would be suicides and all that stuff. But that's just, you know, that's just a cover story. There are actual social engineering reasons as to why uh, the Beatles were created and why the Beatles had to continue. And that's why we had a replacement. And so um, the replacement was Billy. And he took over the band in September of 1966. After uh, Paul had died on the 11th, uh, within a week, he was on board after uh, working with Brian Epstein and uh, working things out with John Lennon. Right. Okay. And um, then what happened was there were people, obviously, that had noticed that there were differences in biological Paul and Billy. One of the big differences right off the bat is Billy's taller than biological Paul by a few inches.
0: It's by like four about inches four or so. inches if you believe Yeah, right. Works.
3: That's right. That's right. And uh, so we can get into some of the other differences in a little bit, I guess. But oh. So in the 1966 timeframe, late 66, going into the release of Sgt. Pepper, um, more people picked up on... The whole band just changing on the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Everything looked different. Yeah, but there were people—not a large number of people—but there were. There was a minority of folks that looked at the album and said, "Well, that guy kind of looks like Paul McCartney, but he doesn't look like Paul McCartney." Yeah, and so so there was some a dust up at that point, but it really didn't go anywhere. It it just there was this minority of people that were looking at it, questioning it, but the vast, vast majority of the folks that were following the Beatles and buying Beatle records and so on, they just said, that's Paul McCarty. Yeah. So the Beatles actually themselves fed the, uh, the pipeline with the clues. And so in 1969, that's when it kicked up. That's when it got into, I don't want to say high gear, but it, it came into uh, a higher level of awareness to the public, Always and that came through f- Fred labore like Sure, that came from Fred Labore writing an article for one of the uh, college papers, and also yeah. Russ Gibb, who was the DJ.
2: Yeah,
3: and uh, you know that started a, a big stir. And to make a long story short, uh, even though it got hot and heavy back in 1969, with more and more people questioning it, they started playing records backwards. The the big one would be on the white album, uh, Revolution Number Nine, where uh, it says uh, Number Nine, Number Nine, Number Nine, and when you play the 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 album backwards, it says Turn Me On, Dead Man. Sure, it's very clear, right? And at the end of Strawberry Fields Forever, John says, "I buried Paul." So people started listening to this stuff because. So it's not cranberry sauce, Mike. No, it's not cranberry sauce. Yeah, that was the. That was the explanation, which, of course, is ridiculous because when you yeah. do listen to the record, whether you listen to it at normal speed or if you play it slowed up. It, it's not even close. It's, it's not like, even I close. Care, it's, what speed it's, you play. it's not even close. No. So that's what happened. And um, so, but even though um, it got hot and heavy in 69, um, the Beatles weathered. I, I don't even want to call it a storm because they were actually, like I said, feeding the clues out there. Um, yeah. But they got past it, and if you read memoirs, Billy will tell you much to their amazement, or you know, his amazement especially, that more and more people didn't pick up on it. Well, then yeah. after they got over that hump, he just continued on as, as Paul McCartney, and now he's been in that role since 1966, so he's been playing the yeah. part. He's the primary replacement for 54 years. Um, there have been doubles, and I know, Angelo, you know this, and lookalikes. Uh, right from day one. Oh, yeah. And uh, Billy tells I us there.
0: Actually, Mike, not to interrupt you, but I, um, I'm i going to do something tonight that I haven't done uh, ever. Yep. I'm going to, uh, in, with Vince Russo here, and that shows this moment with, with Vince here to do it and you. Tonight, I'm going to tell a story that I was witness to, that I was privy to. You and I shared that story on the phone. I'm going to tell that story publicly for the first time.
3: Great. That's a great story. And it, it really confirms yeah. what we're talking about tonight.
0: Exactly. So uh, Billy the, dropped so a lot
3: of clues. He's been dropping clues in his album since, oh uh, my God, since the very yeah. beginning. And he's still doing it today. And so, you know, I, I picked up a copy of the Memoirs of Billy Shears back in the summer of 2016, dug into it. And uh, there's a lot to dig into. And it's like I said, it's like a big puzzle.
2: It's big time. And
3: Takes you down different paths, and you start to figure out more and more. And so here we are today. But uh, biological Paul McCartney is—he's uh, not with us anymore. Uh, my position is he is indeed deceased, and he did die back in 1966.
0: And Vince uh, Russo, Billy's been playing the part. When did you first become aware of this uh, tangled web called the uh, McCartney conspiracy, events?
2: Man, I, I think around the same time you did, Angela, it was probably 68, 69. I remember I was a kid and I remember vividly. Um, I don't know if you remember this. I know Mike does. There was actually a special on at the time. I think it was on WOR and it was F. Lee Bailey. Oh,
0: That's you're talking eight. about where they did the mock trial, Vince?
2: Yeah, bro. I got to tell you, I watched that yeah. as a kid. I must have been at eight years old or so. It scared the hell out of me. Like I, it, I, have that. I actually have
0: that on tape.
2: I would love to see that again because I, I only saw that one time, and that was the yeah. time I saw when I was about eight years old. And I
0: have the whole, t- the whole show on tape.
2: Yeah, that, uh, that scared the hell out of me. And from that moment on, and like I said, I was an eight-year-old kid. I've always, uh, I've always been into this story, getting as much information as I can. You know, I came across Mike. And yeah. you know, ad, ad, listen. Out of anything that's on the internet, out of anyone you listen to, out of all the videos that are out there, I, listen. Nobody touches Mike. I'm, I'm. N- no. Nobody even comes close
0: to You'll the. You'll get research. no argument from me, brother.
2: Yeah, you and, and guys. I'm telling you, if you're listening to this for the first time, there's a lot of information on the internet, bro. Go to Mike. Like n- nobody can touch Mike. And and you're t- you. I've been on this for fifty years. Yeah, but he comes close to Mike.
0: Yeah, I, uh, I will tell you that uh, I've only done two things in my life. I've done wrestling and music. I worked in the entertainment business um, till I retired from, the, from entertainment and music. Ninth, I was 46 years old when I left, and I, and I left with a, a nice piece of change. But I followed my passion, which was wrestling after that. So that's all I've ever known was wrestling and entertainment. I came to the McCartney conspiracy, not like a lot of people, though. What I noticed wasn't so much, you know, the the purported look difference, you know, the, uh, the way the, the Beatles were changing their style. That wasn't it for me. It was the very noticeable sound. I have always had a keen ear. My ear has always been my moneymaker. That's how I made money in the music business, was my ear. And they, on the surface, Billy and Paul may may sound like he's close enough to get away with it. But there are some striking, striking differences in the way Billy shears, Billy... Billy Shepard Campbell or Billy Campbell Shepard or whatever you want to call him between the his vocal style and Paul McCartney's vocal. And, and, and Mike Messier, I want you to jump in here a little bit too because we're going to talk about something. Sure. Um, Paul McCartney had a far deeper voice than a lot of people realize. Most people don't know that he was almost... I don't want to say baritone, but he was a a low alto. And Mike Williams, you know what I mean by low alto.
3: Yes. Yeah, Billy and and, and Paul have different voices. And um,
0: in fact... Exceedingly different.
3: Yeah, and what they had to do on Penny Lane, when Billy first sang the song, um, they actually had to speed the record up in order to to try to get as close or closer to how biological Paul McCartney might have sounded if he had sang that song. So there was, there were, there were things that were done in the studio to be able to, um, to get the the vocals to sound similar. Of course, they can't be an exact match because nobody's voice is an exact match, but to get it to the point where
0: people would not question it. If you ever want to, prove Mike Williams theory just hear a recorded version of a McCartney song and then see Paul McCartney live that's all the proof you'll ever need he does not sing at the same range tempo or speed never has and never will Mike Messi I want to bring you in here Yeah, you're a guy who works in aesthetics correct you're a cameraman what Maybe, ticked yeah. you off that something was different about this guy we call Paul? Well,
1: one big clue, uh, just to follow up on the on the song, Penny Lane, in the book, The Memoirs of Billy Shears, uh, Mike Williams, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't uh, the writer saying compare yesterday to Penny Lane and listen to those two songs back to back? Isn't that the example? And Eleanor
3: Rigby and Penny
1: Lane. Eleanor Rigby and Penny Lane. So he's mm-hmm. saying, listen to the two songs and listen to how out of breath the original Paul McCartney would be on Eleanor Rigby and how it's like a struggle to get those lines out as compared to the full breath of, of Penny Lane, which would be with the second Paul or Billy Paul. Um, the other thing that really tips me off, there's two big things. The, the, the shape of the head, uh, the second Paul or Billy seems to have a longer head and the earlobes. So that's a physical thing that's hard to deny. And then the, the real big thing that didn't get brought up yet was the Japanese arrest in 1980. Which well, is-
0: Mikey, I'm going to ask you to do me a personal favor and hold yeah. on to, to that. Because um, the story that I'm going to tell, that I'm going to tell for the first time, directly ties into that. So I'm going to ask you yeah. not to go too far down that rabbit hole.
1: Well, some of the videos I watched, including Mike's and some others, really paint a portrait of this situation. And I guess coming at it from a different angle, as a guy that grew up, my sister was the huge Beatles fanatic in my family. And I always kind of, just being the younger brother, rejected the Beatles because she was so into it. But I'll say this, having studied so much in preparation for this show it makes you want to go out and buy all the damn Beatles albums, doesn't it? Because I can see the marketing aspect of this, if it were to be true or not true, either way, they hook you into wanting to play a private investigator and figuring out what's going on here.
0: Vince Russo, Mike Williams, you guys have long believed something that I have believed initially, which was that it was a fabulous PR stunt. The Beatles were losing ground. The Rolling Stones were were kicking ass a little bit. You know, the British invasion was in full swing. And the Beatles weren't quite what they were. But it took to the point where by 1965, and I want people to, to listen to what I'm saying. By 1965, there was a Beatles album out. Called a collection of oldies. Think about this. In 1965. 66. 66. December of 66. They released it. Yeah, And a collection of oldies. You're talking about a band that just came here just a, a, a couple of years before. And now you're putting out an album of the greatest oldies. Right. What gives? Explain this to me, Mike. Well, that album, the front cover,
3: there's a, there's a a man on the front cover. He has kind of blondish hair. That's actually Billy. Okay. And yeah, so, wearing
0: the, uh, the psychedelic zoot suit.
3: Yes, that's right. And so that album actually was right smack in the middle of the transition from the biological pole period going into the Billy period. And... You're right, Angelo. They called it a collection of oldies, but they weren't old songs. Uh, The album actually had songs from Revolver, which was released in August of 1966.
0: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that album. Mike, I'm glad you mentioned that album, because that album, in in the minds of a lot of Paul conspiracy theorists, point to Revolver as the... uh, if you want to call it the marquee moment, uh, if you look at that album cover, you'll see Paul within Paul in the ear, right. and placed on in various strategic locations on this album cover. Kind of odd, uh, don't you think? For a, for a band that's that's really not known as a uh, um, a forward-thinking hippie band, they're a pop band. They're the new kids on the block of nineteen sixty-four.
3: Yeah, well, that album cover was also um revolver was there stepping into the psychedelic era too. They really uh were kind of gearing up for it. Um and that's that's one of the reasons. Klaus Vorman was the artist that uh put the album cover together. He's a, Klaus goes back, you know, back to the Hamburg days. Oh, sure. With the Beatles. So he's he's a longtime friend and associate. Um so
0: great know, revolver photographer too, by the way. What's that? Klaus Vorman's a great photographer, by the way.
3: Yeah, and he's also Amazing a very photographer. good very good musician. Yeah. So um, yeah, so so Revolver was, you know, the last of album was the seventh album that the Beatles did. It was the last album, the Biopole period. Then a collection of Oldies was released. And what that was, uh Oldies was just telling everybody who was in the know, the inner circle, that phase the biological Paul phase is over, and now the new phase, the cycle, psycho- the psychedelic era, uh, with Billy, is now going to kick off. Because Collection of Oldies, when you look at it, it has a psychedelic feel to it. The album cover, yeah, as did Revolver, and then of course we get to Pepper, which was released on June 1st of 1967, and that's just you know full blown. But in any case, um, yeah. So you know that's what Collection of Uh, of oldies was all about it was the uh it was the intermission if you will
0: (laughs) yeah 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 vince russo um take me back to uh to your experience with the memoirs of billy shears yeah did you read the red cover edition vince or did you go right to the uh, blue cover i went right to the blue cover. okay so now you're reading this encoded writing here Uh, and you're you have now the benefit of footnotes that are not in the uh, the first red cover edition. You're reading this book and you're thinking to yourself, "Holy shit! This is, somebody put a lot of work into this." And they they did indeed. Did you have trouble as I did um, trying to understand the encoding, Vince? Because it's kind of layered. Um, it's 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 like peeling an onion back, trying to. Trying to understand it But when you When you successfully do it With the first page that you You know that you've read I'll give you a hint I'll just open the one here um, When you When you successfully do it with one page Every subsequent page Becomes easier to do Was it hard for you to do that?
2: Well not when you've got uh, Mike Williams Doing 8,000 slides <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, if I if I would, I'm going to be honest with you, if I had a really keep in mind, I'm a writer. If yeah. I had to comb through that book on my own without Mike's help with the encoding and the footnotes, I would have no question about it missed a lot. But as a writer, here's my takeaway with the book As I'm reading this book from cover to cover, Mm -hmm. my takeaway is either what I'm reading is 100% absolutely true or this dude's got one hell of an imagination. I mean, I'm talking about Stephen King times a million and and the more I'm reading this and the details and and he, here's another thing that, that you got to understand the naming of names. Yeah. When you're lying about something, when you're yeah. making you know part of my French,
0: when you're making shit up, the last yeah. thing you want to do is name names because well, why don't you, know, ju- you say that, Vince? Um, because I'm going to do that tonight. Uh, and I did so with Mike Williams on the phone. Um, one of the stories referred to in the, in the red cover edition, the memoirs of Billy Shears, I heard before the book was ever written. Are you going to so keep us in suspense? <laughs> what
3: when, 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 when we get to <laughs> our moment? Now I've got your story.
0: attention. <laughs> Tell the story, Angela. <laughs> I've got your attention. So Mike Messier, as you herefore before referred to, January of 1980, Paul McCartney gets arrested in Japan. January 14th, I believe, to be exact. Uh, 1980. He gets arrested in Japan uh, supposedly for... Um, Having more marijuana than he's supposed to have had. Correct. Like in Japan, you're not supposed to have any because they take that shit real serious. Uh, And they don't like drugs in their country. So, any other time, you know, you'd pay a fine, you'd be on your merry way. One problem. They took his fingerprints and his prints didn't match up. Right. Enter one Denny Lane. Elaine's Lanes be- will become important for a couple of reasons. Number one, he was the go-to guy. Number two, I heard him tell the story in person.
1: And he was a, a member of, of me. the band Wings. Angelo, is that correct?
0: He was, uh, yeah. He okay. was. Uh, he was a part of Paul McCartney's Wings group. Gotcha. But uh, he was actually the founder of the Moody Blues. Way back when. You're too young to remember that, Mike.
1: I know the Moody Blues. <laughs>
0: When you were a little kid.
1: When I was an embryonic. So I,
0: uh, I'm working at a club. I'm the uh, MC Director of Entertainment. And um, we have a, a band. Uh, Vince Russo, you might know the band. Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes.
2: Oh, yes, so I actually saw them in concert, yes.
0: Okay. Well, Johnny O and the classic Dogs of Love were on stage performing. In walks Johnny O. I mean, uh, uh, Southside Johnny and the Asbury Jukes. They take a back table, they watch the show. Right behind them, Danny Lane and his manager walk in. Southside Johnny at the time was opening for Danny Lane. So and they were they were performing in New Jersey and they were they were doing two shows in New Jersey and four shows in Philadelphia. Uh, They were performing at a place you might remember called the Tower Theater. If you've ever heard of the Tower Theater, I've heard of it. yeah. Yeah. So after the show, everybody goes home, and I've told Mikey the story. Uh, you know, uh, Mike, I, I got to say Mike instead of Mikey because that's Mikey and this is Mike. <laughs> Sorry, Mike. Um, I've told Mike the story. I heard from Denny Lane's mouth, he told a story to us that night. That was very heavily alluded to in the red cover edition of Memoirs of Billy Shears. I'm going to share that story with you. It was about Paul's arrest in Japan. They initially weren't going to let him go at all. And they were going to basically expose this guy for being the fraud he was. They had one problem. He made too much money for them. Well, he actually, they had a couple of problems, not, not the least of which was he was recognized as Paul McCartney all over the world. But his fingerprints were coming back, not Paul McCartney. And so Denny Lane's telling this story, and he says it was in the middle of their tour. Denny had planned on leaving the tour anyway after the Japan concerts, a series of concerts. The concerts, by the way, never took place because of Paul's arrest. And they blew a shitload of money. Uh, Denny didn't really matter. It didn't affect him financially at all because he had planned on leaving the tour anyway and had his own series of gigs already set up. So he tells the story that he is the ad hoc envoy for Paul McCartney. He needs help. He's only allowed to make a couple of phone calls. He calls a couple of people. He wastes his phone call. Essentially, here's the gist of it. He calls Danny Lane. Do me a favor, contact this guy. He gives him the name of a go to guy. Heavy go to guy in British intelligence. He provides the Japanese, I don't know what, and this is the only thing I don't know. I don't know what he gave them. But whatever it was got Paul out of jail. Whatever he provided to these people got him out of jail. I can only surmise, and, if, and I've never been asked to, to psychically look at this Because I don't do that unless I'm asked to. But if I had to put my. Psychic thinking cap on. My guess would be that. uh, That he was given. You know. A green light to go home. And never return to Japan. Or at least to stay out of the country for a while. Until this blows over. Based on. His association with. A. Interpol. B. British intelligence. C. His connections with EMI, Apple, Core, and Sony, which are all, by the way, British military industrial complex, if you want to call it that. Um, and I don't think I'm going to get an argument from Mike Williams on that one. And uh, and essentially, Danny Lane is the guy that basically got Paul McCartney out of his jam. The second and, Paul McCartney. What's that, Mikey?
1: The second Paul McCartney, the Billy.
0: Well, Paul. we call him Billy. Yeah, we'll refer yeah. to him as Billy. Correct. So that's the story I have never told publicly, and now it's out there. So there you go. Let the Okay, ch- so
3: you're the- saying, Angelo, that Denny relayed that story, the jail story, and Denny was telling the group w- of which you were part of yeah. that he was directly involved in intervening to get him out of the clink in Japan.
0: Absolutely, just as I told you on the phone.
3: Okay, okay. Because in the book, Billy talks about being in in jail. He says that the reason why they had different fingerprints, so so the audience knows, is because when biological Paul was younger and he was in Hamburg, he and Stuart Sutcliffe had uh, had set fire to a uh, a condom, <laughs> right? And the yeah. German authorities were called. The police showed up. They they got their fingerprints. And so those fingerprints were, were with Interpol. And so when yeah. Billy got arrested in Japan, of course, they took his fingerprints and then they came in and they said to him, what's up? You can't be Paul McCartney because we have Paul McCartney's fingerprints and your fingerprints don't match. So that's how he got himself into a bind. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's, it's and Billy had said in the book that the British government slash intelligence had intervened to pull him out. So Denny telling this story... Um, it, it still aligns with Billy's version of it. He probably didn't want to bring Denny into the book as being the intermediary, but you know, um, but it does make sense to me that you know that Denny might or could have been, and according to according to Denny, he did uh, play a part in getting him released. You no, know, well, I, I have no
0: reason a- to think that he didn't. I, I absolutely believe he did. My there, gut tells me that he that he was being truthful there's footage um of
2: when he's when uh Paul is leaving the country and they're questioning him about how he got off and he came across as he 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 wouldn't talk about it he came across as yeah. well they 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 got me out i mean he would not even discuss yeah. it and when you read the book you know i mean there's no question like He thought that was it. Like, he he thought, you know, the gig, this is, like, the gig's up. Like, I'm bust. Like, he thought there was no way out of it. But it's interesting, the comments, because you can see the footage online when he's leaving the airport, and they're questioning him and just
0: how dumb he's playing to everything. Well, I got to tell you, Vince, uh, Billy, for for the sake of Mike Messier, Paul McCartney, Billy Shears, Billy Campbell, Owes. He owes his left foot. He owes his right foot. He owes his balls to Denny Lane. Were it not for Denny Lane, I think it's very, very likely. I believe it's very, very likely that the gig would have been up back in 1980. I don't think would have ever heard of the memoirs of Billy Shears. No, I don't think there would have been a need for it. Um, I think based just on my instinct, uh, on my, my visceral gut reaction, uh, I believe that, uh, that this guy is going to come clean soon. Uh, and I think a lot sooner than a lot of people think. Um, I think in the next year, it wouldn't surprise me if there was complete full disclosure within a year and uh and don't be surprised uh because when Billy finally passes it's all going to come out
3: well, yeah, I-, I wanted to say one thing though uh, angelo uh, i whether it was Denny or not, he would have been released from jail. I mean Denny was probably the phone call he reached out to according to to Denny's version of the story but the the part that Billy was playing on behalf of Tavistock um meant that one way or another, somebody was going to ensure that he wasn't going to spend any more time in jail. He was they were going to spring him. So that's the only thing I want to add that uh yeah. you know, Denny Denny most likely at that point was the phone call he made. He was the point person. But, you know, if Denny did what he was telling you he did, what they did was they made a phone call to people in emi or in you know to tavistock or there were people that they reached out for and they said okay yeah we'll take all them the above here. right right
0: i believe all the above yeah they have to remember something to the political climate there in 1980 particularly in japan you gotta remember mike japan was a power unto itself they didn't give a shit they did not care they were they were arresting people left and right they didn't give a shit they did it because they could they did it because they have complete autonomy over their country and nobody was going to stop them. And they were very nobody strict with was drugs. Going to stop them.
3: They were very strict with drugs.
0: Yeah, and it was going to and it was going to take someone extraordinarily high profile and powerful to make that kind of arrangement to get this guy out. Yeah. Don't forget he was he wasn't in there for 2 3 days. He was in there for 9 days. He spent right. 9 days in jail. What, yeah. what, you know, a pop star, what, what star of that caliber do you know of spends nine days in a Japanese jail cell? Mm-hmm. Everybody knows, the world knows he's Paul McCartney. Everybody except the Japanese police that arrested him because his fingerprint said, no, no, you're not Paul.
1: That would be like Mick Jagger or uh, David Bowie or... Someone of that nature in 1980, Bruce Springsteen, spending time in jail in a foreign country without any intervention. So you're right, Angelo, that that uh, does bring a lot to light, that whole incident. Uh, Think about
0: it. Let's just let's go back in, in in 1977. Okay, specifically 1977, something happened that you can all relate to. Elvis Presley died in 1977, August, all right, summertime. But in January of 77, there was a very, very convincing lookalike named Johnny Hara. Look up his name, Johnny Hara, that looked so much like Elvis that the guy actually caused a riot in front of a stadium where Elvis was performing. Mike, look up the name, Johnny Hara, H-A-R-R-A. Yeah, I think He's I looked him up before. Yes, He's damn near a dead fucking ringer. Pardon my language, Vince. <laughs>
1: Vince is still a Christian here, so we have to be respectful. Come on.
0: <laughs> I am too, but once in a while I drop a F bomb.
1: <laughs> Angela, I wanted to say, if I could, that um, Vince Thank Russo you. was getting to a point a few minutes ago. Which, uh, if it wasn't, an, uh, if the book, The Memoirs of Billy Shears, isn't a truthful book, then it's such a high level of imagination and storytelling. And I wanted to say to, to Vince Russo and to everybody, I actually enjoyed the book as a, as a narrative book. I mean, uh, take fact or fiction out of the way for a minute. I found that there was life lessons in the book talking about being inspired by the deceased, how how the kind of momentum or the beginning of the Beatles were in place but then this second guy had to come in, win over the rest of the Beatles, John, George and Ringo, who are still mourning the loss of their friend, how he had to kind of go into this awkward position of being a replacement for, for a dead friend
0: right. and
1: carry on this hoax and live his life and, and he realized that he was at his heart a, a musician and he loved sharing music and creating music, but he always had, he, he didn't think that he had the self-marketing skills to get his voice
0: to the world, being put in this unusual Damn. spot of taking I don't over. know if I buy all that narrative, Mikey, you know, well, uh, well. Here's, here's the bottom line. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to cut to the chase for you because here's sure. the bottom line. Billy Campbell, Billy Shears, whatever name you want to call him, he's not a people person. He's a musician. He's a very cloistered individual. He's not a people person. Paul McCartney was a people person. Unfortunately, Paul didn't want to stay in, in music. I mean, just let's just call a spade a spade. He didn't want to be a Beatle the rest of his life. He wanted to make a few dollars and get the fuck out. He wanted to get out. And I believe that. I believe in my heart and my soul. I believe he wanted to make a, f- a few dollars and leave to the point where and this is and I, I actually checked on something, Mike Williams and Vince. I, I'm sure you've heard this story. I'm going to I'm going to tell both of you guys. There was a, a purported lookalike contest that took place There's this much talked about Paul McCartney look-alike play look lookalike contest that took place. I actually had to verify whether that actually happened. And indeed it did. It actually happened. There was a real contest that took place that Paul McCartney was the judge of. And lo and behold, one of the contestants, some say the winner of it, was this guy named Billy Campbell. What do you know about that, Mike or Vince, either of you? Well, I know
3: his name wasn't Billy Campbell. There was a there was a contest that was held. Uh, I forgot the guy's name that won, but uh, he. I mean, it didn't go anywhere as far as um, him uh, taking on some kind of role or or whatever. Um, I just want to back up a second, though, Angelo, because there's some things here that I just want to make sure it's it's clear that people understand where I'm coming from with this thing. We don't have any idea, really, what Paul McCartney. Biological Paul McCartney wanted out of the Beatles. We don't. Uh, we we have stories, we have narratives, and we don't know whether those stories and narratives are true or not. Okay, they could be, they may not be. So I just want to I just want to make that clear because um, you know, as I do this work, I, I try to stick to very fact-based types of uh, discussions and and views on this topic. So I I just want to say is before we go any further with the show, I don't want I don't want to drift into. Areas of discussion that are so filled with conjecture that it's just going to water down the whole thing. Yeah, okay.
0: I, I certainly respect that.
3: Okay, but I just, you know
0: there are there are you know uh, again there are uh, there are parts of this conspiracy theory. This uh, you know the narrative of the memoirs of Billy Shears is compelling in itself, but then there are people now coming forward who claimed to have had a part in various aspects of the replacement of Paul McCartney. One woman came forward, um, again, you know, in silhouette, and I, I don't put a lot of stock in that, but she said something that I've heard before, that Paul McCartney never left San Francisco after the Candlestick Park show. I've heard that, and you're shaking your head affirmatively. You've that's, uh, heard that. that,
3: that yeah, that, that's a narrative that's been floated around.
0: Okay. Where does it, where does a story like that gain legs?
3: Well, it's it's like how anything gets legs in a in, in conspiracy, uh, Angelo, and people come up with stuff. Um, they could be theories. They could be something that somebody heard from a person, from a, you know, some other person, you know, uh, separated by 10 degrees. We don't know. That's the thing. Um, so, I, you know, I have heard that, that he was, the car crash was uh, possibly in the United States. Car crash could have been uh, in England. But at the end of the day, the way I look at it, it doesn't really matter. Car crash is a car crash. Geographically, where it happened, does it really make a difference?
0: That's what I was day, getting you wind,
3: you wind up dead you know,
0: that's so that's, exactly that's how I look getting. at it. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I was getting. to What are, what are your thoughts? I mean, uh, you, you've got to have some kind of input here. Do you, do you think this was some, some grand conspiracy by, uh, by a group of nameless, faceless people who manipulate others for a living? Uh, or do you think that the, there was just something, you know, innocent that became sinister by way of uh, rumor and innuendo.
2: Well, I think, I, I mean, you know, when Mike touched on it before, when he touched upon Travis Stock, th- this goes to a much, much, much higher level. And, and I'll tell you why I think that. If we all followed the career of John Lennon, okay, you know, John Lennon was not afraid to say anything. You know, to the Not point of, yeah, to the point of, you know, the, the, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, you know, was having his line. I, I mean, John Lennon spoke his mind oh, and sure. a lot of times it got him in a lot of trouble. Yeah. And President Nixon was
0: up his ass. Come on. Yeah.
2: <laughs> right. There is no doubt in my mind. I don't think John Lennon would have thought twice about dropping dime. On this, unless it was a matter of life or death, if, if if you drop dime, and we're gonna kill you, you're not gonna drop dime. Here's the thing with me: there there are a couple of things to me that like keep this alive without a shadow of a doubt to, to me of course you know the, the Tokyo thing With, without a shadow of a doubt the yeah. fingerprints how that's not a bigger deal than what it is I'll never well, understand
0: and Vince you know that's the thing that struck me because at the time I heard the story we were only seven years removed from that moment right. I heard the story in 87 and Denny Lane in front of me and six other musicians telling the story
2: Right, then you have you have numerous videos, especially one where Paul is caught off guard. There are numerous videos where people refer to her as Billy,
0: like oh, many. What, man, Dana, like, yeah, Dana what, Carvey.
2: Yeah, Dana Carvey. The big one is you know Olivia Harrison. Oh yeah, with, without a, a shadow of a doubt. Yeah,
0: she but hugs you, him and says hello, Billy. I mean, she right. hugs him. But here's
2: the thing with me all along from the time I was a kid, okay? Like I said, I found out about this when I was 8, 9, 10 years old. You get to the point like, okay, bro, it's a publicity stunt. You, you get it. The, the, the clues are there. The album covers are there. That is all there. That was put there. None of that is coincidental. They put the clues out there. So yeah. you, I, you start realizing, you know, when 12, 13, 14, 15, okay, it's a publicity stunt. But you're, you're waiting for them to come clean with the publicity stunt. Exactly. Here and we they are. never do. Right. here, they, they never do. They never do. And if you know, like, I, I'm, I'm friends with a bunch of guys, uh, you know, Ben Hamen and Stevie Riches, oh, the sure. conspiracy husband. They've schooled me Absolutely. a lot about the Illuminati. And yeah. the thing with the Illuminati is, I, you know, I guess part of the rules of being in in, in the club is they put they have to put the stuff out there in front of your face because it's so absurd. Nobody's going to believe it anyway. So I they, plain sight plain Yeah, they literally put it out there in front of your face. So yeah. I, I look at a couple of things here. Number one, this stuff was put in front of our face without a shadow of a doubt. There's no coincidences here with the album covers and the songs and the lyrics without a shadow of a doubt. How how an 80-year-old Paul McCartney is not saying... Yes, it was a publicity stunt. And this is why we did. There is no reason for him at this point to not yeah. come clean with it. There's no reason for Ringo Starr to not come clean with it. And then, you know, like I said, the mm-hmm. in, in the book, I was getting to this before, the naming of names and yeah. Elton John. Elton John writing a song about this knowing all about this all
0: the musicians who knew about this oh, oh my god sure everybody from Elton John to to Donovan to um oh uh, Stones. Uh, Goodbye, Gagher, Keith Richards oh my God please but I mean and, and, and,
2: and, and Mike explained this a little bit when when he was on the show with me Mike I'd like you to get into this like if you can because like that that's always been my thing okay like bro when do you say it's a publicity stunt? When do you say we did it to sell more albums? Like, at, at, at what point
0: do you say that? The fact that that has never been said. Vince, I got a question for you. Do we make too much of the Sgt. Pepper album? Do we, do we always point to the Sgt. Pepper album cover as, like, you know, the holy grail of, of the Paul is Dead movement. Do we make too much of that? Or has Paul been telling us all along?
2: I think the Sergeant Pepper album is everything is right there for you out in the open. Everything is right there. You know, and again, you guys are musicians, man. I know Mike's a musician. I swear to God, bro, I've seen bands change over the years. I've seen Mm -hmm. it. We've all seen it. Artists change. I cannot believe the same band that recorded Love Me Do... Recorded. I am the Walrus. I, like the, the. I I don't even know how you can grow. Now I don't know if you know about this, uh, Angelo, but Mike did an unbelievable presentation about the making of Rubber Soul. I've and seen all of them. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Mike, you know, it's almost like you had this Love Me Do band. And then all of a sudden they went to this rubber soul where other musicians took over. And then they went to this third level of, you know, Sgt. Pepper, I am the walrus, which was t- t- to comprehend these were the same four musicians all along. Mike, you know music better than anybody. Has there ever been an artist that has made that type of a stretch musically within a few year period?
3: No, that's the problem. That's the problem yeah. that, that the Beatles narrative has is that, like you said, Vince, they went from uh, Love Me Do to PS I Love You to Tomorrow Never Knows
0: on Revolver or to uh, Norwegian Wood. Well, let's Award, let's or- go from one extreme to the next. I mean, let's go from I want to hold your hand to Helter Skelter. Right, I'm, but the, but the point being though screens. is
3: There
0: you yeah. go.
3: But the point being is if we take a look at just the biological poll period from Please Please Me, their first album in 1963 right. to Revolver, to Vince's point, that's three years. Yeah. So in a three year span of time, the music evolved from Love Me Do and the songs that were on their first album Please Please Me to what ended up on Rubber Soul and then Revolver. It's Look, it, it just didn't happen. It wasn't there wasn't an evolution of skill no, and no. ability that took place to take you from point A to point B like that.
0: That's a great place to ask a question. That's a great place to ask a question. Great segue in fact. The you used the word that I love, evolution. If we are to assume that the Beatles evolved naturally as an organic unit. It's conceivable that at some point down the road, they may have come up with a Helter Skelter or Abbey Road or any other such album. But to your point, and I want you Vince and Mikey to pick up on this, to do that In a three-year period, in such a condensed time frame, do you believe, Mike Williams, that this process was pre-planned all along? Was this part of the narrative of the evolution of the Beatles To, to put them out in public, let people see what we look like, then we'll take them off the road? Nobody will know what they look like, but they'll hear them. But you don't know who you're hearing, but it says the Beatles, so you think it's the Beatles. Walk me through this. The Beatles are a psychological operation. The Beatles
3: are a creation of Tavistock. They were put together.
0: There you go.
3: And the Beatles were groomed and brought along from earlier on. Um, I even have a theory that says that... Uh, they were in mind control programs and some people might think that's crazy but i there believe were pictures, that, by the there way. were pictures of uh of biological paul McCarty and george harrison with bird cages on their heads a bird cage is illuminati symbolism yep. for mind control and uh, uh mk ultra slaves so you just set that aside because some people are going to be like that's crazy right but But they were brought along starting when they were the quarrymen. So the quarrymen is another way of saying stonemason, freemasonry. Okay. Quarrymen, stonemason, freemasonry. And then they were doing the whole Hamburg thing. And what they were doing is they were playing relentlessly. There were times when they were in Hamburg, they were playing seven or eight hours a day. And what they were doing is they were getting their chops down. They were putting them through the motions so that they could play songs right they could pick up songs quickly play them the beatles were a bar band they were a bar and club band yeah. that's what they were when they were signed by EMI by by George Martin they were still a bar and club band okay they weren't writing original music they were doing they were doing covers yeah and so then what happened was there was an article that was written in the Mercy Beat newspaper in 1962, which was a very popular paper that had to do with the, you know, the rock scene, the music scene back in the day. And that article clearly stated that the Beatles were going to EMI Studios to record songs that were written for them, that were yeah. given to them by their producer, George Martin. Mm-hmm. So what people... What the the folks who are listening, the best way to take a look at this, there's a great documentary out. It's called The Wrecking Crew. The
0: Wrecking Crew. Great, great film. I love it.
3: Great documentary. The Wrecking Crew explains how all of the U.S. pop music in the 1960s and 70s was created. There was a core group of studio musicians that laid down the tracks and did the recording. And the people that they were telling you were the band. Their role was to sing the vocals and to maybe do the harmonies. And many times, they didn't even do the harmonies. They brought in professional singers to do the harmonies. Yeah. On music now, and they
0: recorded. Through. We should point out, Mike, that they recorded with everybody from, you know, Aretha Franklin to Elvis Presley, Frank Sinatra. You name every genre of the music. Beach Boys,
3: share know um, Sonny Absolutely. and Cher, just about. Every piece of music that you've listened to from the 1960s yeah. going into the 70s uh, was the Wrecking Crew.
0: That's And who there wasn't to. a piece of music they didn't touch.
3: Exactly. And so you had the same setup in England, right? So you had Jimmy Page was a studio musician. A lot of people don't know that. Oh, sure. uh, Ronnie Verrill was a great drummer who played on uh, amazing numbers of, of, uh, of songs, along with Bernard Purdy.
0: Who oh, my was, God, uh, sure. Okay, Bernard Great Purdy, who's
3: an American drummer. Now, just to give, just to put uh, something. a pur- uh, Shuffle. Some, we put some, the Purdy Shuffle, right? Bernard was very, yeah, very Yeah, by the
0: way, just in the interest, full disclosure, I, uh, I was a drummer. Became okay. a drummer because of Ringo.
3: Of Ringo, right. And it wasn't the Ringo Shuffle, it was the Purdy Shuffle. Purdy Shuffle. That's right. And so, um, now we had... Just to put some context around this, because people might be thinking, if they haven't watched my big presentation, where is he going with this? I had put forth the premise and laid out the evidence that the Beatles did not write their own music, especially between the periods of 1962 and 1966. Please please me through Revolver. What they did was they came in and they sang the vocals. That's what they did. Studio musicians were hired to lay down those tracks. If you listen to, as an example, as a drummer, Angelo, yeah. if you listen to the drumming on songs like "Day Tripper," sure, and then take a listen to uh, John Lennon's first album with the Plastic Ono Band, that's Ringo drumming. Absolutely. Listen to the song as an example. Listen to the song "God" on that album, and listen to Ringo play, and listen to his fills. They are not. They are not the caliber of what was being played and the the drumming that was on Not the records being closed. played during those that period from 1962 to 1966.
0: And the reason for that is Ringo has a very distinctive double tap beat. Well, it's his natural inclination when he plays, he plays with with what we call a double tap.
3: Ringo doesn't have the chops to be a studio drummer. Period. Okay, that's
0: no, that's doesn't. it.
3: So, what they did was they hired guys like Bernard Purdy. They hired Ronnie Verrill. Okay, these are guys that came in and they were doing drumming on Beatles songs. Yep. Bernard Purdy came out in the 1970s and said that he drummed on 21 Beatles songs. Bernard never moved off
0: that story
3: ever. He took fact, a
0: lot of heat for that too, Mike. Took a lot a of lot heat. A lot of heat. And then he published but He book never wavered off, you're absolutely right. He, he, he never wavered it. from that story.
3: He was asked about it in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s and in in, in the 2000s and in 2014, Bernard wrote a book and he had dedicated a, a chapter to the Ringo Starr controversy. And again, Bernard again tells a story in his book that he drummed on 21 Beatles songs during the early period, which would be from Please Please Me through Revolver. That's the early period. And then. I had a person who contacted me, a very, very solid source, Ronnie Verrill, uh, a great drummer and studio drummer in England, doing the, the, the session circuit, also drummed on Beatles songs. And yep. Ronnie Verrill is related to this person. That's all I'll say, because I, I can't give any more out.
0: Sure, that's, that's fine. Absolutely. This person
3: stepped forward and said, yes, indeed, Ronnie drummed on these songs. So the, the point they're making is, is that the whole Beatle narrative is fiction, right? There, there are elements of nonfiction in it. There, there always has to be some thread of truth in any lie or any piece of fiction. That's how you keep it together.
0: Well, right? Mike, here's the acid test when it comes to Ringo and his drumming. At no time, not then, not now. And Vince Russo, you could check this out if you... If you think I'm bullshitting, not then and not now did at any time Ringo come forward and say, that's bullshit. Not at any point, even to this day, he's never disputed what what Vero said, what uh, what Purdy has well, said. Purdy said, never, yeah, he's never disputed anything that anyone's ever said. In fact, there's an interview that Ringo did and Mike I want you to address this one where he talks about the quote the writers unquote yes well I yeah, thought that was that that Lennon and McCartney were the writers
3: right that was an
0: anthology Didn't and also you think
3: that Vince?
2: yeah no yeah me and Mike spoke about that several times
3: yeah and then also we have to going back to another drummer uh, a lot of folks don't realize this but this is this is common knowledge in the Beatle narrative Uh, On the songs P.S. I Love You and Love Me Do, which were recorded back in 1962, um, Andy White was the drummer. Yeah. George Martin hired Andy White, who was a professional session drummer for those sessions. And we are told that those are the two songs that Andy drummed on. I believe that Andy drummed on a lot more than those two songs. That's my personal opinion. And then we had Bernard coming forth and saying he drummed on 21. And then I had my source come through who, you know, who was connected into Ronnie Verrill and said, Ronnie drummed on songs. So, you know, so the point here is, is that going back to what I said, the Beatles were a creation of Tavistock and they had it was a social engineering exercise to change the culture, to change society, to get people off of traditional values the illuminati according to the memoirs of billy shears were told that the illuminati declared war on christianity in 1962 and if you speak to any christian they will tell you that their faith and their religion has been under attack for a very very long time oh boy so all so all of these pieces come together so the beatles were created to to be one of those very very powerful tools out of Tavistock, out of the Committee of 300, because Tavistock is tucked in under the Committee of 300 to change the environment of the world, to change societies, to change cultures, to change values, to change people's morals. That's what it was. That's what they were used for.
0: Mike, were let's part, uh, part of the Aquarian conspiracy. T- tying into that, let's mention a couple of names that, uh, that went by the wayside rather unceremoniously, in fact. Um, You know Tavistock, and I think I know Tavistock well enough to know that they do everything with purposeful intent and deliberation. Um, Why did Pete Best not fill into their narrative? What was it about Pete or Jimmy Nichols that that they they didn't fall into the narrative of the Beatles? Well, Jimmy Nichols was, he, you know, he was a replacement for Ringo um, when they
3: did a tour. I think it was in Australia, if I'm not mistaken. But um, George Martin did make a comment that Jimmy Nichols was a fine drummer. And there was an interview where uh, Jimmy Nichols, because he was filling in for Ringo, was asked, was it hard to, to fill in for Ringo? And, and Jimmy Nichols kind of pauses for a second. Then he has kind of this smile on his face and he says, No. And we have Paul and, and John right behind Jimmy to his side. And they both have this, this grin on their face. They both yeah. kind of have this little, this little smirk, this little chuckle, right?
0: Yeah, I know that. Interview. Now,
3: we talk about Jimmy Nichols. Who was, uh, who was the other one you mentioned? Oh, Pete Best.
0: Pete Best, yeah.
3: Okay, yeah. So Pete, let me, I'll explain my theory on Pete. And this is going to get a little weird for the audience, okay? The thing with the Beatles is that they are very occulted, Okay. The occultism is just boiling over. And uh, Paul McCartney, because of his eyebrow, he had an arched eyebrow, was symbolized the all seeing eye. Yeah. The eye of Ra, the eye of Horus. Absolutely. Okay. This is why Paul was very, very important to the program, because he was representative of this Luciferian philosophy. That was being pushed out. Uh, this was the change. Okay, so when I said they were going from traditional values in social engineering, well, that's part of that social engineering. A big piece of it is a Luciferian philosophy with regard to lifestyle and uh, and, and and living your life. Okay, basically, um, do as thou wilt. To to uh, to quote uh, Aleister Crowley. Yeah, and I, and I realize it's more to that for folks who are listening to this. I got it. I don't have time to get into it right now as far as what, you know, what doest thou wilt means. But maybe I'll go into it a little bit. It means to follow your pure will, your true will. Absolutely. That's what it means. Okay. So that's what Luciferians believe.
0: Follow your true and pure will. Well, there's a, a, a fine line between do what thou wilt. Which is basically from, from the pagan or Wiccan, you know, the, 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 the fullness of that is do what thou will, but do no harm. Right. Look, look,
3: I'm not saying there aren't issues with people taking that to the extreme, and we have obviously seen it taken to the extreme. Yeah, all we I need mean, to because that's my, look at my study what around us on any given day the occult. Yeah, I'm just, look, all I'm doing is I'm explaining what their philosophy is. That's all I'm yeah. doing. Let's saying I embrace it. I'm just saying this is their philosophy. Now, yeah. the reason why they got rid of Pete Best, in my opinion, was because Pete was a really good-looking good guy. And they needed Paul mm-hmm. to be the good-looking guy because they needed the audience to focus on Paul, to focus on what he represented. He's a, he, yeah. he represented with his eye, the all-seeing eye, the eye of Ra, the eye of Horace. And if they had Pete in the band, there would have been competition Stiff competition for who was the best looking or who was the cutest Beetle. Yeah. Okay. I know this sounds very weird to some folks.
0: It actually but- doesn't, believe it or not. And I follow you uh, implicitly on this to the point where there was a, an interview done. You would think if you're going to interview a brand new band, you're going to have all four guys together and sit down and talk to them, right? Well, that wasn't the case. They always pulled Paul out of the band to be the spokesperson, even though it was John's band.
3: Yes, they spent a lot of time focused on Paul.
0: Yep. Thank you. You got to wonder what's up with that, you know.
3: Yeah.
0: I mean, let's tell you something.
3: And for folks who don't really comprehend the occult aspect of this, this is very, very difficult to get your head wrapped around. It really is. The only thing I can suggest, and I'm not plugging my material, I'm really not, but if you're interested in this and you want to understand more about what the heck Mike is talking about, go to my channel and watch some of the videos I put together. And I will explain how this all works. And in fact, one video I did, it's about 20 minutes long. It's called The Luciferian Cult of Paulism. Yes. Okay.
2: Yeah.
3: And um, again, it sounds crazy, but take, take a look at some of those videos, folks, and... Just sit you back do and a watch
0: remarkable them. job, by the way, of tying it all together in a cohesive and common sense way, because you really don't have to be a scholar to understand it, and that's what I appreciate, although if you want to speak to me on, on scholarly terms, I'll understand that as well.
3: You have uh, to have an open mind, though. See, that's the thing, Angelo. You have to have an open mind,
0: Yeah. Well, and you
3: have to just set aside all preconceived notions, and things that you believe in, and that's hard to do because everybody has a belief system. Everybody believes yeah. certain things, and it's very difficult to let go. I, I mean, I'm the same way. I'm no
0: different than anybody yeah. else. Well, it's a but little easier for me, Mike. I'm a psychic, so I see a lot of shit, brother. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. You I'm know, sure. and I work for people with three letters in front of their names. You know what I'm saying? So, so just, I, I just to work sum for up, a lot Jimmy of Nickel agencies.
3: Just to sum it up, Jimmy Nickel. Uh, was uh, just a, a drummer that was replacing uh, Ringo for that particular tour because Ringo had, I think he had his tonsils taken out. Yeah. And uh, Pete Best, I believe, was was removed from the equation because he would have competed with the focus on biological Paul McCartney at the time, so... That's, you know, that's my take on it. And yeah. I, I'm taking up way too much time here, so I, I would love for Vince to chime in because...
0: Well, yeah, I'm just going to uh, ask Vince and uh, Mike Messier to chime in here. So, Vince, this sounds like a kind of bizarro world that, that it had to be a shock to your system. You know, you're basically a, a common sense, you know, grounded New York kind of guy, East Coast, like, like I am. And then, you know, here Mike comes along with his... Uh, kooky esoteric stuff and and here we are it's like, oh shit, I, I I understand what this guy's talking about. <laughs> 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 you know? This crazy esoteric well, stuff is more common it, sense than we realize. That's really so, what yeah. fill me in. Where where does uh, where does Vince Russo fall in all this? I am a
2: common sense I always go back to logic. Always like even even when I was writing wrestling, you know, whenever I got stuck I would always go back to logic. Okay, what what would happen if this really happened? What would this person do? It always went back to logic and commentary. I think I think I think the Bible is logical when you really look at the Bible. Things make a lot of sense. Yeah,
0: absolutely. So the
2: one thing I love about Mike with the presentation is he doesn't try to sway you. You know, Mike's not. Mike tells you up front. I'm going to give you the evidence. I've I've done years and years and years of research. This is the evidence. I am going to present this evidence to you. You know, listen man, conspiracy theories come and go. You mentioned Elvis earlier. Remember when Elvis died in like 5 days later we were seeing him behind the screen door at Graceland? Yeah, right. Well, they, they, we don't talk about Elvis being alive anymore. You know, right. nobody. Exactly. This has been going on for Fifty years, there has to be a reason
0: for it. Fifty-five years, there's got to be some, there's got to be some kind of. Uh, yeah, I mean, we hear this.
2: To it. We hear you hear it all the time. You know, Tupac is alive and well and living in the Bahamas. you you, you hear that yeah. shit all the time. No Great. story has had legs for this length of time, and the yeah. fact that it doesn't die and it doesn't go away you have to you have to look at it and you,
0: you have to give it credence. I said at the onset that I believe in the next year there will be full disclosure. We will know. I really believe that in my gut. I believe that in my heart. But I believe it more so in my psyche. And when I feel something in my psyche, it's generally right. Like always. Um, and I'm feeling this deep in my psyche that we're going to know this man's true identity and I believe uh, it, here's the funny thing I don't believe his name is Campbell I don't well, believe he, his name is is a, at all Campbell I think his name is Shepard for sure and I think we can probably trace him back to early as far as Billy Pepper and the Pepper Pot uh, back to you know to Denny Lane's involvement with the, the, diplomats. the diplomats, and we haven't talked about Phil Acrel or any of that tonight. But that's a rabbit hole we could go down if you want. But suffice it to say, this goes back. This predates the Beatles. This whole persona called, you know, Billy Shepard or Billy Shears, whatever name you want to give him, he goes back, predating the Beatles. Well, he would be—he would be
1: five years older than the original Paul McCartney, which was another aspect he of some is,
0: of the. If you believe the timeline, Mike Messier, he is eighty-three-ish, somewhere around there. Mike Williams, he was 83, born in uh, eighty-four, something. Yeah,
3: he was born in nineteen thirty-seven, so he's—he's uh, he's eighty-three. He'll be eighty-three in September.
1: Okay. Some of the evidence that Mike has on, on many of his videos, and I, Mike Williams, I am watching um, your video, uh, the evidence that the Beatles didn't write all of their own songs. And what I loved about that presentation, as you call it, is that you systematically break down that the story that's been told is that these guys were filming a movie, making an album, doing live tour dates. And look, they could be four geniuses or not, but at some point, they're human beings, and to right. expect guys to be making a movie, doing tour dates, and recording music is, is a bit preposterous.
0: Yeah, all, all within, what, a 30- or 40-day period, they're going to crank out 20 songs, push out three movies, write a shitload of songs for their next album. They're going to do all this, what, in, in a month? Right. Well, and, yeah. Uh, the, the other thing...
1: The other yeah, thing tell me, uh, in,
0: in what world does that happen? Well it doesn't. I've uh, worked in the music industry, Mike Messier. Right. I'm gonna tell you something. It takes a good four to five weeks just to get the sound down. Just even, to get the sound down. Right. And and what I could relate to is even and as you screen- get another two months to lay out artwork.
1: Right. And and as a screenwriter, if I can get fifteen pages done in one or two days, I'm very proud of myself. So we're talking about instruments, music, recording, uh, as Mike points out in his presentation. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- that's, not, that's like saying these guys came in and they were all on the same page all the time and they just magically wrote this stuff with no bickering about the lyrics. There's only
0: one way that scenario is even at remotely possible, Mike. There's only one way that's even remotely possible is if every song was written, arranged, organized, um, sheeted out. The, the Mike, un, Mike Williams understands what I mean by sheeted out. It means all the sheet music is already composed and written. If that's not if if that's not in the equation, everything else is gone. Everything else is gone. You can't have an album unless you're Unless you are some kind of miracle worker, I mean, if you're, you, you know, if you're that good, I want you on my team. You know, yeah. So if you're let me let me good, just you, you come just come here. I'll hire you.
3: Maybe what I should do is just take the audience through uh, an example here, right? So so they can kind of get you know a grip on this thing here. There were four, I consider four major moments when uh, the story about the Beatles did not hold up. One was, I, just, I mentioned earlier, the 1962 Mercy Beat article where it clearly said that the Beatles were going to London to record songs that were written for them right. and given to them by their recording manager, George Martin. The other one, and it's a big one, it's the elephant in the room, is... 16 songs in 30 days, which was the Rubber Soul sessions, 14 songs for the actual album itself, and then there were two singles, We Can Work It Out, and Day Tripper. The third one was the story that we're told that they wrote 30 plus songs in India in preparation for the White Album sessions. The problem is is that when they were in India, uh, Ringo was there for only two weeks, Uh, Billy was there for about three weeks and John and George stayed for uh, eight weeks. So, and when they were in India, that was a retreat. They were participating in meditation and other activities.
0: And that's factual.
3: Right. And that's what they tell us, right? So, And then they tell us that in between doing all that stuff, even though they weren't all there for the same period of time, they weren't all there for two months. Is what I'm saying. Billy and and Ringo were out of there within a month. That they wrote 30 plus songs. That didn't happen. The other story we're told is um, they made the Escher tapes in May of 1968, where they went to George Harrison's bungalow and recorded 27 songs, demos in one day. In one day. Okay? That's not possible. Yes. Yeah, tell me, what, in,
0: in, what, in what world does that happen?
3: It doesn't happen. So here's the no, thing, right? Just, let's, let's talk about Rubber Soul a little not bit.
0: Not in the music just, business, it doesn't happen, I can tell you that.
3: We are told that in with Rubber Soul, they had no material. They said they came in pretty much empty-handed. And so let me, let me just take you through the timetable here real quick, and just so it can hit home. They were in the studio one day, and we are told that they had completed the song Run for Your Life. They get into the studio after touring, doing their U.S. tour, taking a break for six weeks. We are told that they did not write songs during that six-week period of time when they got off the the tour to when they got into the the Rubber Soul sessions on October 11th. Mm -hmm. So, no, no songwriting. The songwriting all began when they got into the studio on October 11th one day after they're in the studio they bang out run for your life two days later drive my car five days into the studio day tripper is done seven days later if i needed someone 10 days in the studio they completed norwegian wood on the 11th day they completed two songs in my life and nowhere man and then On the 18th day in the studio, they did We Can Work It Out. And then there were um, four songs, the rest of the songs were done um, in the November time period. But the point I'm trying to make is are we to believe they came in with no music, no backlog of songs? They started writing, they had a rehearse, they recorded, George Martin arranged, they did the vocals, they did the harmonies, and they banged out Run for Your Life in one day, Drive My Car in two days, Day Tripper in five days. If I needed someone in seven days, that didn't happen.
0: I got some swampland for you in Hoboken, Mike Williams, if you believe that. Well,
3: that's right. What they did was while the Beatles were on tour and while the Beatles are doing everything that they were doing with movies and stuff like that, because uh, in 1965, they were recording the Help movie. um, George Martin was putting all the songs together, right? The session musicians Were recording the songs and by the time the beatles got into the studio on october 11th there was no recording of instruments the music tracks the instrumentals on the songs were all done they were all done and all the beatles had to do was to come in and sing the vocals to the songs that was their job in 30 days so in 30 days they had the task of completing the vocals for 16 songs, 14 for the album, and two Ace what they called an A-side single with yeah. Day Tripper and We Can Work It Out. That's what they did. By the way, another band did that as well. That everybody knows that they did that. And they were the monkeys. Mm. And you yeah. know, and we have Davy Jones in an interview telling us very clearly that the Beatles were the first manufactured band. Absolutely. Davy Jones in an interview says this. So, you know rubber soul when i did the uh when i, when I did the documentary the presentation what, I, what happened was i was watching a dvd it was the making of or the de- deconstructing of rubber soul yeah and i bought it and i was watching it and i got like 10 15 minutes into it and vince knows this story because i told vince the story we talked about it i said this didn't happen <laughs> there's no way yeah. this happened there's no way
0: yeah i know where you're going with that absolutely
3: so do you have any thoughts, Vince? It look like you, you have some
2: thoughts. No, Mike, but you forgot one key thing. And I think, you know, if there's anybody listening to this for the first time uh, and they're like, what about this and what about that? The whole reason um, when Mike breaks all this down where everything was laid out and all the Beatles had to come in and do what the vocals is because they had to know the time of every song right. for the labels exactly. that had Thank to be you. made for the albums. I Thank mean, Mike, when, when you laid that out and how long it takes to press an album and get the labels done in the cover and whatnot, they had to know the exact Times the songs were going to be because all that stuff had to go into production so the labels and the cover and everything would be ready, so everything was set. They knew the timing of the songs, the Beatles just had to come in and lay down the tracks.
0: Vince, I'm going to tell you something I've been recording bands for 30 years, and all that time, I can count on my hand twice, maybe three times, where bands actually came in and wrote. Or refined what was already written. In 30 years. Of recording bands. It's a rarity. Extremely rare. That a band or an artist will come into a studio. And write anything. They'll generally refine. What they've already written. Or they may have a different arrangement. Once they play around with some chords. That said, it's extremely difficult for me as a recording engineer, and that's what I did in music, by the way, because I never told you. That's what I did, Mike. So I, re- I literally recorded bands, and I know what it's like to work behind the board. And when I say Mike Messier, it takes five weeks to lay down sound, it takes that long just to lay down the instrumentation. Right. You're not going to crank out a full album of 20 songs in 30 days. It's just not going to happen. You're not going to have your artwork. You're not going to have your pressings. You're not going to, have, none of that's going to happen in 30 days. It's a I... three, four month process. Well they they actually you know
3: you you know Angelo that that the clock starts as far as releasing an album when they cut the lacquer the final lacquer right and yeah, that wasn't be. done that that wasn't done until November 17th of 1965 and then we're told the record was in stores two and a half weeks later on December 3rd
0: not two happened. and a half
3: weeks didn't happen did nope, not happen not not which meant the album cover like Vince was saying the names of the songs the time, the time is important. They had to put the labels on the vinyl records, the center labels. All of that stuff was done, and it was in the queue. All they needed them to do was sing. And once they finished the singing, right, they were able to hustle the uh, the lacquer out. But the, the album art, all that stuff, the labels, that was all done. That was all done. Yeah. And by the way, what they released on December 3rd, or what they got in the stores on December 3rd was the initial delivery of albums. That doesn't mean, uh, you know, uh, truckloads and truckloads of albums made it to, to the retail outlets on December 3rd. I mean, they got albums out, but they, they got the initial batch out to the retail stores on December 3rd. But two and a half weeks with album art, like if they didn't have the album art all prepared, they didn't have the labels all prepared Yeah. to create them after they finished up recording, totally impossible it's not possible so that meant all of this stuff was done up front it was pretty much all done by the time they showed up in the studio on october 11th and left on november 11th and then after november 11th george martin sat down he did the final mix down with the instruments and the vocals he they got the final lacquer cut the acetate sent it off to emi for pressing and then they got it out to the stores all of the heavy lifting, all of the stuff that um the all the logistics of getting a record out, that was all done up front.
2: Mike, you know what this can really be related to where, where it all makes sense and the story is very, very close. Look at the Beach Boys.
3: Yep. Bro,
2: yeah. surf and safari You know, surfing USA, surf with your mother, surf with your grandma, (laughs) surf this, surf that. Then what happened? Brian Wilson said, I don't want to go on tour with you guys. I want to stay behind. I want to create music. Brian Wilson brought in the best studio musicians in the world. Pet Sounds was created because that's all Brian Wilson was working on. These guys were touring. Just the same thing with the Beatles. Same thing. Bro, put George Martin in the shoes of Brian Wilson. You have the same exact story. It went down the same exact way. There's no way the Beatles on the road shooting a movie, doing press, could have created this masterpiece without a Brian Wilson in the studio full time creating it. It's the yeah. exact. It's the exact situation. And, and by
3: the way, the session musicians sounds, was you know? the Wrecking Crew,
0: right? And Brian right. Wilson hired you,
3: the Wrecking Crew.
0: That's right. It's interesting you, to talk about Pet Sounds, because if p- people, I don't think they realize how long Brian Wilson worked on Pet Sounds. Just in, if you have any idea, just take a guess. Two, two years. Think, Vince, how, how long do you think he worked on it?
2: I would think a minimum of two
0: years. Six years, brother. Mm. It took him six years. That was a six-year labor of love, he called it, for Pet Sounds. He wanted to do something, and they used... they used. funny. They used one of Brian Wilson's lines in the film, Eddie and the Cruisers. He wanted to be great. He didn't just want to be good. He wanted to be great. And his... Pet sounds was his greatness, mm. and he's it, it's now an opus. It's yeah. it's fair to to call it an opus, is it not, Mike?
3: Well, it is, but he but Brian was he got he felt like he got upstage when Pepper came
0: out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, exactly. Yep, Mike Messier, yep. your thoughts?
1: Well, so many thoughts, but I mean, one thing that strikes me about all the presentations that Mike Williams has given us. On his YouTube channel, and of course Vince Russo and the brand have a YouTube channel, and uh, we have a YouTube channel, uh, Angelo, and we're sponsored by Manscaped, so people can go to Manscaped.com and they can use the promo code Wrestling Future, I believe, right, Angelo?
0: And uh, it is uh, Wrestling Future for twenty percent off. Uh, right. Why don't you go ahead and do our spot for us, Mike? Go ahead.
1: Well, basically, if you want to take care of your male area between the knee and the waistline, you go to manscaped.com, M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com, and you enter the promo code WRESTLINGFUTURE, and you get 20% off. What Mike off-
0: Messier is politely trying to say, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> is that well, whether you're carrying a, a set of cue balls or whether you're the werewolf from the waist down, we all know the man has got nards. And how does he keep those nards trim
1: with manscape
0: and proper and, and gleamy for all the female werewolves out there? He uses manscape, the 3.0. It's the lawnmower 3.0. It's the best in male grooming. We have a promo code. It's wrestling Future for 20 percent off. Mike Messier, tell them where they can find this stuff at.
1: Manscaped.com, mansscap D.com. And happy birthday to our usual co host,
0: Dan yeah, and Sebastian. And I want to move to the side here because at the Manscaped, they say your balls will thank you. Well, I want to say
1: um, <laughs> that a moment, and thank you to you, Angelo, for putting this show together. This is an all star team. Well, the no, moment-
0: I, I say thanks to Mike Williams in in, in earnest. Thank you to Mike Williams for uh, for getting Vince here because he doesn't respond to anybody else's phone is, calls, emails. Vince is, Vince is doing yours.
1: podcasts when he's asleep. That's why.
2: Yeah,
0: it's but crazy.
1: if Mike, if he's Mike,
0: for but, but I,
2: want, I want to say for the record, if Mike called me when I was asleep in the middle of the night, I would get up and answer the phone. For the record, well, there's the, yeah, a
0: and, and if, if I called you in the middle of the night, you'd put a restraining <laughs> out on. <him. laughs> There's, uh, th- there's a right moment. In the show, in, in but the bench while well, I got you here. Well, um,
2: I want to I hear Mike's talk. Yeah, Mike said there was a moment because you're talking about something in, in Mike's presentation, right? In
1: Mike's presentations, it's come up a few times where um, I believe it's in the Imagine movie. I could be wrong. When George Harrison comes over to be with John Lennon for dinner. And I believe it's Yoko is serving dinner to everybody very nicely. And John just kind of makes a kind of a nice statement. And he says something like, hey, here's one of the Beatles wives serving dinner to two of the Beatles or one of the Beatles. And George kind of as a a side comment says something like the three Beatles. Now, this is when all four were still alive. I guess this is like 1979 or 1980. And uh, he says the three Beatles. And then he says beetle bill right and then in the same movie if this is imagine, john met lennon purposely makes a very exaggerated wink like a, a hugely i mean it's actually comedic acting it's pretty funny but john lennon makes this giant g- guffaw on his face which and and coupled that with even recent interviews with paul mccartney i watched this interview with paul mccartney on stage recently maybe a year or so ago, where he's on stage on bar stools with an interviewer. Yeah. And right at the top of the interview, Paul McCartney talks about how he was supposedly left-handed or right-handed, and he was writing with the wrong hand. And the interviewer is saying, hey, was that difficult? Were Were you forced to use your right hand? and paul is is basically telling the story but then he kind of blows it off and he says oh now the people are going to think that i'm really the other like paul mccartney repeatedly whether it's on uh, david letterman or other s- situations there's so many wink and nods from who we know is paul mccartney or who we're talking about as billy the second paul mccartney that it's 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 either an obnoxious joke on the fans a, a rib as they'd say in the wrestling business or it's an admission of guilt or admission of what
0: happened well, it, mike is as mike williams said earlier it's hiding in plain sight they this is what's referred to as masterful speaking and they have to get it out there's no choice to get it out how they do it is a matter of interpretation but it's masterful at its best well, you know, the interview the, that you speak about, Mike, is actually at Paul's school in Liverpool. Right. Where he went to school. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Continue.
2: No, well, it's, it's funny when you talk about that movie, Mike, uh, you know, imagine, you know, you also, you know, remember I had said earlier in the show, bro, if anybody's going to drop the dime on this, it's going to be John because he just didn't give a shit. You know, it's that. However, when your life's in jeopardy, you're going to watch what you say. But when you go back to the movie, imagine and, you know, again, you said, is, is the joke on the fans or, you know, is is this real? When you talk about. John writing and working on how do you sleep at night? Now, there's one thing very telling there. Who's right yep. alongside him working on that song? George Harrison. So exactly. this, isn't, this isn't about a personal tiff. Oh, because Paul wrote about him in this song. No, this isn't about a personal tiff. Think about that. How, what, what did Paul McCartney have to do? How do you sleep at night? And there's George right there next to him. Bro, to me... That's as deep as
0: John Lennon was allowed to go. Vince, I'll go one better. I'll go one better, Vince Russo. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, the Beatles induction. Mm. And George Harrison says, and this is clear as day. We loved John and we loved Paul. Past tense. Loved John and we loved Paul paul and everyone in that audience knew exactly what the fuck he was talking about they all knew everybody was in on it they all knew why because everyone there was a musician and most of them had some kind of connection
1: and it's interesting that paul mccarty didn't go to that initial induction ceremony to the group and then, and maybe start with vince russo because uh this, this might be the one podcast that Vince Russo has spoken the least on in his podcasting career, but I want to ask Vince Russo and then everybody besides myself, as Beatles fans, as guys that grew up with the Beatles as the number one act in the country, uh, in the world, basically, how does this affect you emotionally? Some of you guys, you're all you know into music. Some of you are musicians. You record music. On a personal level, these revelations – Vince Russo starting with yourself how does that affect your fanhood or your appreciation of the music
2: well you know I I think a lot of that I mean I know to me it depends on age you know bro I was born in 61 so you know the Beatles came over here in 64 like I'm three years old I remember the Beatles on Sullivan but I was a child so you know as I got older You know, in 69, I'm eight years old. I I mean, I remember when Abbey Road came out. I remember. I remember hundreds of copies at at EJ Corvettes of Abbey Road. So to me... There's a store
0: from the past.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I kind of came up with the older brand of music. I I can vividly remember Mystery Talk coming out, Pepper coming out, you know, White Album, Sgt. Pepper. So like that, I've never really been a fan of the Love Me Do and the She, I Want to Hold. I've never really been a big fan of that. But if I look at it, the music I grew up with was really Billy Shepard. I mean, it was was one guy. It wasn't really a combination of of, of the two guys. I mean, I tell everybody all the time, my favorite album of all time, you know, is, you know, Rubber Soul, Without a Shadow of a Doubt. So as I grew up, it was really the latter music. So I don't know, man. I feel like this stuff should affect me. And like, I don't know, should I be pissed off or something? But at the end of the day, I love the music, you know, and, 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 you know, whoever created that music created that music. It's never going to take away from the music.
1: Good answer. Let's go to Mike Williams for that same question and then Angela, but Mike, what's, what's your take on it? How does it affect you on a personal level, not as a researcher, not as a journalist, but personally, does this, do these revelations affect your appreciation of what's been known as the Beatles music?
3: Well, it was a, it was disappointing, Mike, uh, you know, when I first got into it, uh, the way I explain it is, I used to put a lot of luster around the Beatles. You know, I was a big Beatle freak. It's it, they influenced me playing guitar, writing music, recording and all that stuff. But the luster around the four guys that were supposed to be these four creative geniuses, that's gone. That's gone. That does not exist because that's not what they were. Right. Okay? But like Vince has said, the music is still great. So there's no way that you know, I cannot like Day Tripper or Drive My Car or Strawberry Fields Forever or Come Together, you know, I'm still going to play those records. I I have a huge, like Vince, I have a huge collection of Beatle vinyl and other vinyl. I'm still going to play it. I'm still going to enjoy it. But I do it with a different perspective now, a different understanding of how that music was created. Okay, so for me, Hey, if the music is good, it's still good. I'm going to listen to
2: it. You know, I, the the fascinating thing to me is, you know, the guy, you know, being in the wrestling business, guys. I could tell you, like, it, it, it's it, it's it's all about ego. Who whose idea was this, and who came up with? <laughs> what? Egos in wrestling, bro. If you're if you're oh, yeah. not in wrestling, you 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 won't under you won't believe what I'm telling you. Egos yeah. off the chart. I never really looked at it. This way till now, as we sit here and talk about it, and as Mike is talking about the music, bro, the more and more I learn, Mm -hmm. it was George Martin. Now, can you imagine, Mike, like being George Martin and not being able to say, (laughs) <laughs> wait a minute! Like, wait, hold wait, Lennon McCartney? Like, no! Like, <laughs> yeah. you? I'm, I'm, I mean, seriously, we're we're talking about yeah. the greatest music, perhaps in the history, uh, definitely in the history of my of my life, and the guy who was probably most responsible is not allowed to say, "Yeah, that was me." Can I, Can you imagine? The mastermind. And his son,
1: George Martin's son, reads the audiobook version yeah. of the Billy Shears memoir. Uh, Angelo, please answer that same question I asked Vince and Mike. How does this affect you on a personal level as a fan?
0: Not one iota. Doesn't affect me one bit. Okay. I'll tell you why. Because the music is the music. And if a music if music takes you to a place that you want to be or a place that you've been or brings back a memory. Or something special in your life. Then it does what it's supposed to do. It's, music is created. For one ro- only one reason. Only one reason. To evoke emotion. It, that's all it does. It just evokes emotion. Whether it makes you feel good. Happy, sad, angry. Whatever it does. It just evokes emotion. That's all it's supposed to do. And it doesn't affect me one iota. When I, right. when I hear I want to hold your hand, I still tap my feet. Okay. When I hear Helter Skelter, I still bang my head. You know? It, it doesn't disturb you,
1: though, that, like, for instance, Ringo Starr, who was so influential in you picking up the drums, that doesn't bother you that maybe he Not didn't at all. Play? Okay, fair enough.
0: No, because it got me to do something. It got me to react. All it right. got me to play a drum. Mike and now I play drums and guitar, and I play a number of instruments. I've been to five Rock and Roll Hall of Fames. I've been a, a recording engineer for 31 years. I've done everything i wanted to do. I've worked on television, radio. I've owned a wrestling promotion. I'm like, you know, a really, really very blessed guy. I really am. So the inspiration really still in provoked done, your life. Oh, are you kidding me? I I owe pretty much everything to you know to two things in my life wrestling and music they both provided me a a job a career and an income and put a roof over my head
1: there was a lady that mike williams had on as a guest you know yeah I, I i i guess i guess on the other side of that and i respect everybody's answers my my feeling was that um Nobody had an answer quite like Mike Williams' uh, female guest on one of Mike Williams' shows when they were talking about this, uh, the memoirs of Billy Shear book. And I think, Mike, if I'm not wrong, I can't remember the lady's name, but she was saying that it did affect her, that this illusion made her feel as if uh, the music was somehow not as genuine or a hoax, or she had been manipulated. She had been emotionally manipulated and and I guess coming from a viewpoint of not the biggest Beatles fan in the world, meaning myself, I'm a I'm fascinated. B I'm impressed if they've pulled this thing off for so long. And C I can I start to wonder if there's other things that we've accepted as truth. Whether it's the JFK assassination, hey Vince Russo mentioned Tupac. If it's Tupac and, and Big Papa, their assassinations or their murders other things that we take as gospel that we've been told is true, how much of what we have been told is true is not true or is a warped truth, which is essentially a lie or, or a, a manipulation? I guess that's where my mind goes, more onto the bigger picture. I don't know if anyone wants to jump on that. Yeah,
3: I'll, I'll, I'll answer that, Mike. It's um, I'll give you my perspective on it. Many people have written me and said that my work that I've done on the Beatles and the McCartney conspiracy was their red pill. It's, it's what awakened them to the bigger picture of what's going on in the world. Cause some people will say to me, they'll say, Oh, what are you spending so much time on that for? You know, who cares? It's just a guy in a band. What they don't understand is everything that went in behind creating this psychological operation. And you can take those components and you can apply it to so many other areas of reality and all of these other psychological operations that are taking place at any given moment in our lives. Okay. So the thing is, uh, it, it is a very important conspiracy because it encompasses, it talks about the pyramid of power, right? It talks about within that pyramid, we have controllers. It talks about secret societies, the Freemasons, the Illuminati. Um, This conspiracy talks to us about Tavistock and mind control and social engineering, the drug Mm. culture. We talk about, it gets us to talk about Alistair Crowley, occult, numerology, magic, mysticism, rituals, Luciferianism, and it goes on and on and on. Now, not all of these things play into every conspiracy, but once you understand uh, these components, then you can more easily recognize them when you look at something else. And, And what I... Tell folks, and I, I said this to Oli Damergard going back over two years ago in his show. I said, Oli, anything worth knowing is a lie. And some people will think, wow, really? How could you say that? If it's worth knowing, trust me, it's a lie.
0: That's a pretty ballsy statement, Mike.
3: Well, that's that's what I have found, Angelo. I mean, if we, if we take a look at just to pick anything, pick right. anything that's worth knowing. If it's I'm not, not it's saying no.
0: it's by the way, I'm not saying it's untrue. I'm just saying it's pretty yeah. ballsy. <laughs> Well, I if, guess
3: if it's not worth knowing, they don't care. When I say they, I'm talking and, about yeah, the control. I understand exactly what you mean by it. Yeah, yeah.
1: I guess I, I guess what what comes to mind for some reason tonight, speaking with you three gentlemen, is the JFK assassination, and I think about the Oliver Stone movie. And I had an uncle at the time in 1994 who was obsessed with the JFK movie by Oliver Stone, and he yeah. was watched. He was going to the theater to see that movie three, yeah. four, five times, and. Um, I, I think about it because to me, when you warp history, when you change history, you're changing the present and you're changing the future. and well, it's a that's dangerous the thing, game.
0: Mikey, really, if you think about it, the The Beatles really didn't warp history and they didn't change history. A select group of people. Pulling the strings, warped history and changed history. Okay, these four guys were just players.
1: They would, they would, they would be uh, revealed as figureheads or, or. Yeah, I mean, uh, you
0: call them what you want to call them. You know, I, I, Mike Williams, you mentioned Alistair Crowley a minute ago. I saw a really interesting photo, and it was like freaky. I saw a photo of Crowley as a young guy wearing a kind of a druid. Yeah. Costume. Are you familiar with the picture? I think the one where he's younger. Yeah. It looked like he looks like McCartney. He looked like Paul. Yeah. That it's
3: picture, just, they that was the picture they were actually going to put on uh, the cover of Sergeant Pepper. And they decided not to because they said that there was too much of a likeness.
0: So oh that's boy. why they
3: went. That's why they went with the older picture of Alistair Crowley on the Sgt. Pepper album cover.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's interesting. There's also a guy on the Sergeant Pepper cover that I know very well. His name's Dion. Dion DiMucci. Oh, you know Dion? From, I know Dion very well. I performed with him on stage. Oh, okay. At the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. All right. Which, unfortunately, <laughs> a, brother, I've been around a long time. <laughs> I feel like a dinosaur. <laughs> I really do. I really do. I've been around a long time. Yeah, I performed with Theon at the Latin Casino in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, as part of Dick Clark's Cavalcade of Stars, by the way. And the night before that show, just as a sidebar, Jackie Wilson had his uh, heart attack. Mm. And uh, in fact, uh, the middle of September, we're going to have Jackie Wilson's son right here on Wrestling with the Future. And we will also have America's TV Elvis Pete Wilcox will be here. So uh, might bring Vince Russo back for that one too.
1: <laughs> I, I, I got to ask. I got to ask the panel. Ahead, uh, Vince, Vince Russo and Mike Williams. One thing that I would be remiss to not bring up on my own end is li- oh. having listening to the Billy Shears uh, audiobook read of read by George Martin's son. I mean, if that's not a clue, I don't know what is. But the Vivian Stanshall uh, aspect of this, and he appears with a band at the end of the Magical Mystery Tour movie, and kind of a, and it's interesting that I think it's only John and George are in the audience watching him play, if I'm not mistaken. But I, I'll be honest, guys, that's where some of these wheels come off the tracks for me because I've been looking at Vivian Stanshell, I've been looking at his face, his body, to me kind of reminds me of my own body when when I'm a little lighter, meaning he's a big broad-shouldered guy. And I'm trying to look at him and I'm trying to look at Paul McCartney and I'm like, I don't know if I could the the the, the fall, the 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 billy. I'm trying to put that body next to that body in my head, that face. And even if there's like prosthetics on the face or the eyebrows or something and, 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 and uh, this guy, Vivian Stanshell, had a wife, uh, Kia, I believe it was her name. She was an artist, and she wrote a book about him. So if we're going to say that Vivian Stanshell uh, is also a part of this uh, situation of this guy playing different characters, he would have to have been a bigamist, because then he would have had a whole other second wife and a second family. And I guess that's the Vivian aspect I guess I'm not signing up for yet. Any comment on that from Mike or Vince?
2: Oh, I have you lots want of take things this to one, say.
3: Mike? <laughs> <laughs> I, I Mike? Mean, there were two Vivian Stanchalls. Okay, so oh, Billy played. I Billy played the Stanchall in the band, uh, the Bonzo Dog Band, with Neil Linnis. Neil Linnis was the creator of the Ruttles. So there's all these these all these ties back into. Um, oh my God, uh, Monty Python and all this stuff. So these guys yeah. are all together, right? So Billy played that version of Vivian Stanchall. So if you. Take a look at the, uh, the videos on YouTube of the Bonzo Dog Band and that Stanchoel, you'll start to see the resemblance. And I, I, in fact, I did an entire presentation called Paul McCartney, Vivian Stanchoel, and the Phil Ackrell analysis, and I break it all down. There was a second Stanchoel. He was the one that was married to Kai Longfellow. His name is Victor.
0: Okay. okay.
3: And Billy hired Victor because Billy wanted to keep the Stanchoel character alive. So Victor, who I used to call Street Fiv, he was on Billy's payroll and he was playing the Stanshaw character. In fact, he adopted the Stanshaw character so Billy can do his McCartney character in parallel. And there were times when Billy would step out of the McCartney character and he would go back and he would do some stanchall bits. See? Yeah. So it was a way to keep... There was a way to keep Stancho and the McCartney characters in play at the same time, but there were two of them. And, and if you take mm-hmm. a look at my presentation, you're going to very clearly see that there were two different Stancho's. And even though there was a likeness, as soon as you look at them, you're going to see that they are in de- indeed two very different people.
0: Absolutely. But the, thing,
3: but the Bonzo's were not really a big band. OK, so that's the thing. So Billy was able to step out of his Beatle role, play with the Bonzos, not draw a lot of attention to it. Nobody knew anything about them in the United States. They were popular out in, in the UK and um, they probably have become more popular now because with the book coming out and people like myself uh, bringing to light that he did play the Stan character, because Billy in the book, you read the book, Mike, he, he tells you. He played that character, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, that's, so so. take a look at that particular presentation I did where I, I show you the difference between the two, yes. and then you'll see it. Th- then you will see it. I'm sure you will.
0: Right.
3: Um, okay? Uh, Vince, I know you collect Vivian Stancho records I, now. Uh,
2: Mike Mike <laughs> has turned me on to the Bonzo Duda Dog Band, and they are freaking phenomenal. When you watch really the videos, are. they were great entertainers. Something of interesting note, though... Uh, because, you know, once I got every uh, a Bonzo Dog album, I had to get Vi- I had to get, you know, Vivian's solo music. There yeah. are Vivian Stanshaw albums out there. And yeah. ironically, on on his solo album, what is he doing on the cover? He's digging a grave. Oh, boy. <laughs> I mean think about that. Like, oh my okay, bro. All all coincidental. Okay. Like, why is Vivian Stanshaw digging a grave on his solo? Like, why? I mean, it's it's fascinating, man. But I gotta tell you, what an entertaining band. I mean, I that I, I'm so yeah. glad Mike. I, I had never heard of them before before, Mike. And then I started getting into them. What an entertaining bunch of guys. You might,
0: might be interested to to know that. Vivian Stantial still has fan clubs oh, yes. all over the world. But it, it, it's easy to see how Mike Williams can do a four and five hour presentation uh, on the uh, the death and replacement of Paul McCartney. We've barely scratched the surface and we really have. There's just so much here and, and just where you think you've unearthed you know the last remaining piece. There's a whole new chapter to the book that's uh, that's being written, right after the ending. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, we're, we're like literally looking at, you know, two of well, them right here. Tom you know?
3: Tom released uh, this book just came out, I, you know, I'll, I'll, I guess I'll pl- I guess it is plugging it, but I don't know if you can see it. But anyways what's case, that
1: book? Oh, it's the called Billy.
3: That. It's called Billy's Back. So that's the abridged oh. version of memoirs. So um, what what Tom did was. Um, He updated the abridged version, and so that's out now. And uh, and the reason why I'm bringing it up is because, not not to plug it, but there's a lot of of additional footnotes in this book that go above and beyond uh, what is in the blue cover of the Memoirs of Billy Shears, the 9 after 909 edition, Mm -hmm. and some very, very revealing footnotes. And uh, so I'll I'll just say this. Uh, There are footnotes in here that confirm my presentation about the music okay fair enough and 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 there's a lot of other stuff in there so again this is this is not a conspiracy for everybody obviously but for those that are yeah. interested in it it is an amazing really it's an amazing ride if you're into the beatles and you know about the Paul is dead deal and you weren't sure whether it's true or not it's really uh a fantastic, you know, it's like a, a talk, magical mystery tour <laughs> for a
2: guy that was exactly. walking away from the uh, uh Paul McCartney conspiracy. <laughs> How many months now is it going to take you to do the uh, Billy's Back slideshow? Six months,
0: yeah yeah <laughs> right exactly
2: and, 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 you you, in. and you know what it is vince i've got to exactly. do it because you've got to do it i there's no way yeah. you can't do it man like like look you you're, you know, you're like i don't in even know why what, what i don't even know that now is. when i'm looking back why why would you have made that statement knowing the book's coming out you got to do this
3: yeah you know why i'll tell you why because it, it <laughs> occupies an enormous amount of time and uh it's it's hard to explain when you're doing this stuff and it takes uh enormous amount of hours to to put it all together to package it to do the voiceovers and stuff like that and honestly Vince I reached a point where I said to myself okay so how much more really is there to talk about with this thing you know a lot and and so then Tom comes out with this with, with, with this new book yeah. And there's more information in it. Now,
0: yeah.
3: what Tom told me after I released my, my presentation, the four and a half hour presentation, I gave him a sneak peek two days before the, the video actually went public on April 1st, right?
0: Mm-hmm. He wrote
3: me back and he said, "He goes, your presentation is going to speed up disclosure. And I really didn't know what that meant at the time. I really didn't. Yeah. So I think I'm going to give you a theory I have. I think the way this is working is, and I don't know whether it's because of the contracts Billy has signed or if it's because it's the way he wants to play it, but if information that is true, truthful, gets put out into the public domain, this allows Billy via Tom to put out even more information to to further along. rate and pace of disclosure so as an example if i didn't put that presentation out what we see in the book now about the beatles writing their music or not probably would not have been in this book okay but because it was made public because it was made public he was able to take it another step further now i have a show coming out that's going to air on Saturday, and I, I know Vince has seen a copy of it already, um, but we're going to uh, talk about where biological Paul could possibly be buried, and, and this piece of work was done by a friend of mine, Steve, who did an incredible amount of work working with another researcher that I know, and uh, I, I can tell you that it made a lot of sense, a lot of sense, and uh, so it'll be interesting to see now once that particular presentation airs, what's going to come out of Billy's camp?
0: Would it surprise you if I said I believe he's buried here somewhere? Was here. You, the U.S. Uh,
3: um, he's not buried in the U.S.
0: I just, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he were. Yeah, I just well, had this, there's always been this this thing with me that. For some reason, I've always been bugged by that that con- that connection to San Francisco and Portland. There's, yeah, I've always been, I, and I still remain gravitated to that that area. There's something substantial, something significant there that connects that either locale or something that happened there. Yeah, that's critical to this whole mess.
3: I'll give you a
0: hint. Uh, What it is?
3: I'll give you a hint. The song "Mull of Kintyre." That's what I'll say. Okay. Once you watch the uh, the presentation, it'll all make sense. It'll make sense. Okay. So, like I said, you know, if if Steve has hit the mark, and I think Steve is, I think he probably did. I mean, you can't say for sure, but. Mm-hmm. He did a great job. Um, we'll see what happens after that presentation airs, and if Tom and Billy decide to start updating books again to find if we have new footnotes.
0: Yeah, I, I like I said. I think we're we're going to know uh, in, in a year. I, I, I'm at the outside. I'm going to say uh, a year and one month ah. uh. I would argue that. It's already known by,
3: by people like ourselves. We already know. Oh yeah. Mass understanding. I don't know. I don't know if it's going to be in a year, Angelo. Um, I don't think that they can really do anything, uh, definitively until he passes. This is Mm. what I've been told. I've been told that, um, the, the actual really coming clean is not going to happen until after Billy passes. And we have no idea how long after he passes. I was told, um, Tom and I had a conversation going back maybe about a year and a half, two years ago, uh, email. Right. He said to me, there's a a number of projects that are underway uh, that are part of the disclosure process. Billy's Back and the Memoirs of Billy Shears is just one of those projects that they're working on um, a documentary that, based upon what Tom told me, it's going to come out after Billy departs. And it sounded like, you know, without Tom never gets into great detail because he has signed non-disclosure agreements himself. But it sounded to me, the way the email was worded, that uh, that documentary might be uh, the one that's going to really push the ball forward. I don't know if it's going to be the final word, but it sounded to me like it would really, um, you know, be targeted to the masses to get more on board with the true story. So, again. Mike, I'm-
0: there is a, a movie poster behind me. Yeah. You can see it right over uh, my shoulder here. Yes. Uh, the film is a film called Paul is Dead. It yeah. was. Um, you familiar with the, with the film? Yeah. Okay. Um, from Mike Messier, you might be interested. It was an independent film done in, uh, by a, a film students at, uh, I believe it was uh, London College uh, or London University. Mm-hmm. Uh, great film. I got a chance to see it. Um, it's winning all kinds of awards and largely because they believe it to be based in fact. Um, I don't know where the, uh, the filmmaker got his info from. I don't know if it was in fact Reading the memoirs of Billy Shears, and maybe he just, you know, ripped it off. But they uh, they say that this is pretty compelling uh, stuff in this movie. Um, if you get a chance to see it, it's called Paul is Dead, the movie.
3: Yeah,
0: Mike. Did um,
2: you, see it,
3: Mike? I, I saw a uh, I saw a movie called Paul is Dead. I'm not sure it's the same one. There's there's a there's a couple of them out there. Um, this
0: one is, and I'll tell you here in just a second, Mike. And give me just a second, and I'll, I'll, because I'm just going to pull it up. I have the uh, original poster here. Um. All right, let me see, y'all. Um. Yeah, it's the uh, the film is uh, Pablo Barden and Ernesto Carbonetti. It's called Paul is Dead. All one word, Paul is dead. Mm-hmm. When the Beatles lost McCartney. That's the name of the film. Paul is dead when the Beatles lost McCartney.
3: Okay, so, okay. Um...
1: There is a comedy short which is different than that. Paul is dead when the Beatles lost McCartney
2: is the one we're talking about.
1: Okay, okay. So, that's, so not, that's... not the comedy
2: How short. How
0: did you uh, see that, Angel? Where did you see that? I actually... Uh, pulled it up today. I did a, a general search, wait, and wait, then you, I did it.
2: Wait, just, you saw the
0: movie online? Uh, no, I saw the movie on a streaming service called Cody. Oh, okay.
3: okay, okay, okay. All right. I- I'm not familiar with that one. I thought you would, there was one that's on YouTube um, when you said Paul is dead. There's one called that, and I'd watched that, but this one no. I haven't seen that, so I'll have to take a look at it. Yeah, I just found the review um, of
1: it.
0: Uh, Pablo Bardeen and Ernesto, uh, what was his name again? Ernesto Carbonetti, Carbonelli. Okay, all right. I should know because he's another goomba. Um <laughs> Yeah, Ernesto Carbonetti. Okay. So, uh, yeah, um, it's winning all kinds of awards uh, overseas. It's a really interesting, very compelling. It, here's the basics of it. It's John... Ringo and George, they're sitting around um, trying to warm up to Billy Shears, uh, trying to get him to um, trying to get him to be in the band. Now, the memoirs of Billy Shears basically has him commandeering the band. Yeah. Yeah, this is more more amicable. They're trying to get him to, to come over to their side. I, yeah, I, I that, saw that
1: yeah. T- yeah. I that saw that title. Either. I saw that title you just said with those writers as a as a comic book, as a graphic novel, and then I saw a short film just now online, uh Paul Is Dead, a short comedic film, which was what you described, Angelo. I yeah, no,
0: know. this is a full length this is like an hour and forty five minutes, Mikey. Okay. Full length feature. All right.
3: All well right. maybe Angelo, you could send us the link and we can all take a look yeah. at yeah, it.
0: Yeah. I'll do that. I don't know how to do it through Skype, but I'll but yeah, yeah, email's fine. Yeah, I'm not um, technical like If you want to
2: like send me Mike an did. email, though, Angela, you got to send it to Mike, and Mike will forward it. Yeah, to I'll you.
1: send it to Vince. Yeah, all right. <laughs> How come I can't send anything directly
2: uh, to you. You got to go through Mike. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. afraid. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
1: I, I gotta, I gotta bring up something a little bit. Um, one thing I've discovered in Mike Williams' uh, videos on YouTube. Once again, everyone should subscribe to Mike Williams uh, to. Mike Williams, the Sage of Quay, to uh, Vince Russo's YouTube page. Everyone should subscribe to the brand uh, yeah. on the brand network and pay the three ninety five dollars for all the great content. But one thing that comes up in the Billy Shears uh, memoirs, uh, Mike Williams and Vince, uh, is the numerology. And the date of September 11th in itself, okay, we all know that in 2001, we all know what happened. Uh, Paul McCartney, the original Paul, this car accident happened on September 11th. I believe it was uh, the 1991 uh, war was declared in in September 11th. But there's another date that comes to my mind for a personal reason, December 5th. The Beatles, uh, the Paul McCartney or the the Billy Shears releases Band on the Run with Wings. Uh, Nelson Mandela supposedly dies, although some people with the Mandela effect... Have a problem with that date for Nelson Mandela? Yeah. Um, Walt Disney is born on December fifth. Uh, in the wrestling and so world, is
0: Mike Messier. Yeah, and so I know so you went Mike over Messier. this the last show too, Mikey. Well, my point is, are you with... trying to push us for for presents? You want like gifts? You're trying to well, but... you like.
1: <laughs> so, what's my... the significance of December fifth? The The Band on the Run album was released by Wings. And when I'm when I'm listening to Band on the Run, and, Vince, and, you
0: see what I got to put up with every week.
1: And I'm, I'm I'm seeing some some if you call it hints, but isn't there a shot in Band on the Run where Paul McCartney, as an actor in his own movie, is being brought into a studio and he's introduced as Billy?
3: Yeah, that's. Uh, give my regards to Broad Street. The broad so yeah. So my
1: there's my a there's a scene
3: street. where it says, uh, you know, William. So as he walks into the studio mm-hmm. and. Billy tells us that, uh, you know, they, they left it in the movie. They left yep. it in. So, yeah, that, that's clearly in there. And I have a couple of videos with that clip in there.
0: Uh, my, and my, I don't think it was done accidentally either. No, 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 I no. Think I think mean, it's quite, quite intentional.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff. Like, it's hidden in plain sight, and they drop the clues. And it's amazing. Yeah. Like, that's in the movie, and then people will say, well, why'd they call him William? <laughs> Nobody ever asked that.
1: There's you know? another thing real quick is with... How come this Billy or this second Paul McCartney suddenly has had this affinity for Ireland? He's done a protest song for, for people in Ireland. But if if all the Beatles were from Liverpool, England, why was Paul McCartney just suddenly having this fondness or this relationship with Ireland and the the Lamb album and, and that's, that protest song he did about Ireland? Uh, you know what I mean? It, it just seems like that became part of his his culture or his mystique, which really doesn't make much sense.
3: Yeah, give Ireland back to the Irish. Right? Can I can so, I
0: take that one? Sure. All their surnames were Irish. Irish and Scottish Right, but my right.
1: Okay, but my point is, it doesn't make sense if if the guy from Liverpool, England, has grown up and suddenly in the seventies and the eighties, he has this need to fight for the Irish and go to the farm and all this stuff.
0: Well, he may have had an epiphany. Who knows? Well, I'm
1: saying that, that supports the the theory that Paul is dead and this is a replacement. That supports the theory.
0: Sure. Uh, that's being presented.
3: Yeah. Well, Billy it's, will tell you that
0: he's a. You know, he'll not, tell you I that. I don't think it's out of the ordinary.
3: Billy will tell you that he's a uh, he's an internationalist and he will say that, you know, uh, he'll talk about uh, human rights and all that stuff. And and uh, he'll say that, uh, in fact, I read an article, an interview on this where he said that, uh, you know, it was wrong what was taking place with uh, in Ireland with the, the British suppressing, suppressing the Irish. And uh, and so he felt like, he, you know, he. He wanted to step up, write a song, and it was a protest song. It's really what it was. It was banned. It was mm-hmm. banned in England. They wouldn't play it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I don't know. It's, I, I think, Mike, to be honest with you, I, I'm not sure if it had anything to do with Billy having an affinity for any, for any particular, for the Irish, for the Scottish, for the English, whatever. I think it was because he, was, he did not like what was going on in Ireland. Okay. And, and so he wrote that song. Um, that's that's my understanding of it. I could be wrong, but that's my understanding.
1: Fair enough. Okay.
0: Anything else, Mike Messier? No, I
1: just I just think it's pretty fascinating. And uh, as as guys that, like I said before, the three of you guys who were so influenced by the music, uh, to me, that's that's really the human aspect of this story. And once again, from my listening of the audio book. I found it to be a book that's just pretty fascinating and enjoyable to listen yeah. to on its own as a book as a as Oh,
0: absolutely a book to and I got news for it. for for somebody to sit down and read you know 672 pages and I read everything it's uh, it's actually 666 pages but I read everything I read the bibliographies I read all the references it's a total of 672 pages, the red edition. Um, the blue cover is uh, is some crazy number of 600 and what is it? What is it there, uh, uh, Mike? 667 pages, is that what it is?
3: Yeah, I, I think it's 600 and let me just take a look. I got it right here. It's um, Yeah,
0: because I have the book in front of me, but... Trying to no, it's it's
3: 666 pages, uh, <laughs> just, yeah, which which excludes the the song index that goes on for like another four or five
1: pages or so.
0: Yeah, I read all of it. <laughs> yeah,
3: yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: yeah. yeah. So the physical copy actually ends on page 666, is what you are doing?
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, on both editions, yeah. by the way, too. Wow. Yeah. So, so the
3: 666 yeah. includes the uh, the songs in the back. You know that. Yeah, so 666 yeah.
1: pages, yeah. Absolutely. So th- they, th- that was a purposeful uh, page count. That wasn't of course. just coincidence. Yeah. That's right? why Tom's called the, the encoder.
0: Books cover to cover. Yeah. And a lot of, yeah, you know, uh, the blue cover is essentially a retelling of the first one, but the, uh, the, the gems of these footnotes and, and liner notes are just precious. Yeah. They really, really are. They're incredibly informative. Um, uh, and I you know what Mike, let's talk about that for a second. There's uh we referred on the first show you and I did, um, to your URL being uh inserted into the blue cover edition of this book. Yeah. What was your initial reaction when you found out that the your website was being um was being touted in this this memoirs of billy shears
3: well i was i was surprised i had no idea so um when i first read the footnote i saw james paul com, which is my url it's amazing i have it Mm -hmm. i couldn't believe when i typed it into um into the company i use for domains that it was available i just couldn't believe it so i scoffed it up yeah and then i i have it redirected to my paul is dead page so when i saw it in the um in the footnote, I was I was shocked. I really was. And it's actually in the new book too. Billy's back, it's except this time it's on page three oh six because it's the abridged version. Yeah. And um, it says some videos on ww.jamespaulmcartney.com impressed William. You know, so wow. so he's watching, you know, he's definitely watching. Yeah, I was and, asking uh, for
0: a reason. I recently found myself in kind of a similar position. Uh, you know, um, Vince Russo knows who Jimmy Valiant is, Boogie Woogie Man. I found myself recently being named in his book. He spoke very highly of me, very nicely in his book, called Woo Mercy Daddy. <laughs> it's called Woo Mercy Daddy. The Jimmy <laughs> Valiant story. And uh, yeah, and it's, it's, it's interesting to pick up a book and you have no idea, but <laughs> No. Your name is in it, and this guy's talking about you.
3: Yeah, I had no you idea know. when it happened to me. It was a pleasant It was, a it pleasant was very support. nice
0: of Jimmy Valiant to, to write about me in his book. As,
3: and, and it was good stuff, right?
0: It was all, it was all good stuff. That's yeah, the most the important guy for 33, 34 years. Oh, my God. You You're going to be in a
3: book. should be good stuff.
0: I told you, brother, I'm old. You got to understand something. I started out in wrestling, like literally when I was 13. My uncle was a guy named Phil Zacco. Now, Vince Russo will know the name Phil Zacco.
2: It's familiar.
0: Go back to the days of Putzmont and... Putzmont, uh, I know. Yeah, yeah. Phil Zacco was was my grandfather's accountant. My grandfather was a bookie. I grew up calling him Uncle Phil. <laughs> I told the story to... to uh, I, I got a pop out of Bill after. Yeah. Because he knew exactly what I was talking oh, yeah. about. Yeah, what doesn't, Bill, out there now? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. But, yeah, but I've been around this a long time. I, like I said, I've only done two things in my whole life, wrestling and music. And I was a recording engineer for my entire career till I retired from music. Not that you ever really retire from music, but, you know. Yeah. Other things become important. Yeah. Oh, well, is there anything else, Angelo? Well, I think we are uh, at 2 hours and 30 minutes, we're going to say goodnight to everybody. And Mike, thank you. Uh, we're going to have you back again because there are so many more conspiracies to cover. We're actually going to be... You might be interested in this one, Russo. On uh, August the 18th, I've got a guy coming on named Daniel Lowe. Uh, he wrote a book called The Life, Death, and Life of Jesse James. And it's... uh. Kind of a lot. It's very McCartney esque, because this guy is uh, is saying that the Jesse James didn't die. Is that he's? uh, Mikey, will you stop taking pictures, please?
1: I I took a snapshot of this conversation for posterity. Go back to Jesse James,
0: Vince. How do you deal with him, Vince? (laughs) I deal with him every every week. You don't understand, bro. The man he's a gimmick. I deal with gimmicks well. I deal with gimmicks very well. Uh, my favorite gimmick of the time. I'm still. I'm, I'm, for I'm, gonna, I'm finding my inner Russo now,
2: bro. I'm still waiting for somebody <laughs> to do a Tiny Tim show and invite me on
0: it. Nobody's ever done a Tiny Tim show,
1: bro. Wrestling I got Russo for the you. Tiny Tim.
0: Tiny Tim. No, for shoot, for shoot. Tiny Tim was steeped in this area, richly steeped in this area. His wife, Miss Vicky. Was literally from the next town over in Haddonfield, New Jersey. Wow, well, I did not know that. Yeah, check it out. Check yeah. it out. And she actually, I saw her dance one time. She was a dancer at a strip club many yeah, years that, ago. That I know. Yeah, yeah. I got to see her. Um. But, yeah, Tiny Tim was was richly steeped in this area. Oh, my God. there, was, there are. If I can find – let me ask you a question. If I can find people to come on that will talk about Tiny Tim. I please. will talk
2: about Tiny Tim as, as long as Mike clears it. I will talk about Tiny Tim <laughs> literally. Are you his five, agent
0: well, now? Oh, my God. It
2: goes for Mike What's the amount of this show. We put in two and a half hours. I will talk about Tiny Tim for five hours.
0: All right, brother. I I got your word on that.
2: And I could tell you somebody who actually met Tiny Tim
0: that you might want to call.
2: Bill Apter. Well, go. I know a
0: couple of people that met Tiny Tim. Yeah. in the territory. I did when I was nine. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you where and when. It was at KYW Television in Philadelphia. And he had ukulele in hand, and he was wearing a hot pink suit, oh, complete awesome. with a bow tie. Awesome. Awesome. And awesome. A ruffled awesome. shirt. Well, I'll tell you what, Vince, thanks for joining us tonight. I really appreciate you. Uh, Mike Williams, you are the, uh, the the guru, the sage. You are truly the sage of Quay to be able to get Vince Russo to come on here. And I got to clear all my shit with you now to get Vince. Oh, my God. Uh, uh, well, I at least I, don't I just have- can't wait for this. Billy's back
2: because what, what Mike doesn't oh, know. My God. Is
0: yeah, please.
2: So much work into into these presentations that every time Mike, I, I watch Mike religiously and Mike's video comes on, I'm getting an update and, and Mike keeps putting it back, putting it back, and I'm cutting promos on the TV every single
0: time. Mike, well, I'm give come Mike on Williams,
2: already, get this done.
0: <laughs> I'm going to give Mike Williams more shit to go through because I'm going to send you all my photos. I'm going to send you uh, as much junk as I can don't Put don't do that, a, <laughs> uh, and and have you go? You're going to be going through pictures for days.
3: No, Vince, Mike, knows I'm Thank retiring. you so I'm retiring much for
0: for joining me. <laughs> okay. Um, so Vince, uh, how do I get a t-shirt to you? Uh,
2: how do you get a t-shirt to me? Yeah, go through uh, go through your yeah, Mike's got all my addresses. Just, and okay. just, might I'll, just, I'll
0: send, yeah. Reach out to me. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll send it to Mike Williams and he can send it. Yeah. There you go. Yes. You're the pain Because I age. only
2: accept mail from Mike, too. That's
0: it. <laughs> uh, uh, oh, and by the way, you know, I did a show with, with Ben Hamine too. He and I did a, a psychic show together.
2: Yeah, he's great,
0: Ben. He's yeah, great, great guy. Yeah. Mike Messier, uh, you're going to be with me uh, on Thursday, I believe, right? I believe so. Kenny I mean, Casanova we- is here. And yep. we're going to have Scott Teal. Those Thursday. are we got a doubleheader Thursday. We got Scott Teal and Kenny Casanova. They
1: are sure. involved in wrestling autobiography. Uh, yeah, book writing. boy. And, they are uh, the
0: guy. Who, they are the writers.
1: I think Kenny. Kenny worked very hard on the Danny Davis Dangerous Danny Davis, the WWF yes, referee, Great and guy Big too. Van Vader. Yeah. Big Van Vader book. Absolutely.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, we uh, we barely scratched the surface of, of Paul McCartney. Um, we may have to do another show. We may just have to be satisfied with this one. I don't know. There's just so much. You know, you open up one rabbit hole and you go down another. Just go to my channel. Yep. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Mike, thank you so much. You, you have been... A blessing and a godsend. And I uh, I truly do appreciate you. And I really do appreciate all the work that you put in. All this. A lot of hard work, man. A lot of thank hours. You. And uh, Vince Russo, thank you for taking time out of your day. We are big Russo fans here. I will tell you that straight up. Well, thanks we for having me, man. We are huge Russo fans. Thanks. Um I even got Mike Messier on board, you know.
1: It's great to see the former WCW world champion yeah. and and the guy in my book who doesn't get the appreciation from a lot of people, but some people do appreciate that Vince Russo's attitude and the balls that he had, the spaldings, if you would, to tell Vince McMahon to his face that his company needed an update and a refresh, that led to Austin 316, that led to The Rock. Uh, he'll turn Vince Russo is someone that pro wrestling fans owe a, a debt of gratitude to for our whole attitude era and the enjoyment of that era and beyond yep. with TN, TNA wrestling, the first couple of years and many years of TNA. So Vince uh, no Russo, question
0: about it. And as he'll he'll uh, you got it, he'll always, he'll always be acknowledged here on this program. Uh, and we acknowledge you often Russo, just Thanks. so listen to the show kid. All right. <laughs> oh, by the way, I had your buddy here last week. Who's that? John Rezzi. Oh yeah, no,
2: I like John. Me and John go way back.
0: Yeah, no. He told me when when you see Vince Russo, tell him I said hi. Bro. <laughs> Bro. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I I actually met John for the first time, God back in nineteen eighty nine. Yeah. Way back when. Yeah. Because I was doing a radio show in Philadelphia at the time in 85. He says he was the first one. I know I was the first. Yeah. <laughs> 1985. Wow. Squared Circle Radio with wow. Joel Goodhart.
2: Yeah, I know him.
0: Yeah. So yeah. do I. Yeah. He's my Jewish goomba. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you so much for joining us. Mike Messier. I'll see you in a couple of days. Mike Williams, the Sage of Quay, Sage of Quay Radio Hour 1 and 2. Mike Williams, Paul is Dead Channel on YouTube. Check it out. There are hours, hours and hours. There are days of videos that you can, I mean, you'll never see the same one twice for literally days. Vince Russo's. Vince Russo's the brand. He's got Big Vito. He's got Noel. He's got Ben Humming, Stevie Richards. Um... Uh Oh my god, you got just uh, incredible. Goldilocks. Goldilocks, just incredible. Yeah, I forgot uh Shane Douglas. Steve uh, Shane Ray, Still, Francine. Yeah, I got a bunch of them. Yeah. You got them all. Yeah. Yup. And uh I can't keep track of everybody. What do you got like thirteen, fourteen shows now, Vince?
2: Who I don't even I gotta do I, I had to do one uh four minutes ago.
0: Oh the my <laughs> are we holding you up? Yeah. I'm sorry.
2: That's all right, man.
0: <laughs> oh, you- no, I'm going to let you go. Get- well, listen. Thank you, guys.
2: <laughs> Thank we'll you. We'll see man. you next
0: time. Happy wrestling, everybody.
2: All right, take Angel. Care. Take I care, guys. Take care, Mikey. Take care, care, Mike. Thanks, Bye-bye, Vince. Guys.